<laughs> I can't even I can't even start this out right. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome, Hebrews and Chebrews. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and this is, of course, the Unexpected Cosmology. I've got a lot of ground to, to cover tonight. I'm going to get right into it. Uh, this first document we're going to be going through is called Ham's Mystery Children. And I guess I, I need to give a couple... A, a little bit of context to this before I dive into it, just so there's no confusion. Number one, this is a spinoff, and I'll be explaining this in the first couple paragraphs. This is a spinoff from my presentation on the many lives of Nimrod. Originally, this was intended to be a part of the same document, but it started getting so long and lengthy. And I, you know, when you start putting information together and fleshing the stuff out, you're like, okay, clearly this is enough material for a whole nother uh, separate uh, talking point. That's what we'll be going over tonight. Uh, if you guys recall, uh, the many lives of Nimrod, I was putting forward my research on the idea that there were many Nimrods, as many as three or four of them, and that nobody in history was actually called, called Nimrod, most likely. They had other names who we could research or, or uh, seek out historically. Uh, and um, I went through all of that, and that helped explain the difference between the LXX timeline and the Hebrew Masoretic timeline. Uh, just a quick refresher, the, uh, by the time you get to Yahushua HaMashiach, according to the Greek LXX, there were 5,500 years of human history. Uh, according to the Hebrew Masoretic, there were 4,000 years of history. That's a huge difference in time, 1,500 years. Most of that, a great deal of that, comes from the timeline between Nimrod and Abraham. Uh, the Nimrod who built the Tower of Babel was probably about uh, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 years removed from Abraham. That's a huge discrepancy. And um, to my satisfaction, I showed that there were uh, any number of them along the ways. And unfortunately, that comes with the corruption. Uh, clearly, one of the, the texts is inaccurate, either the LXX or the Masoretic, in terms of the timeline. They can't both be correct. And so um, maybe neither one of them are fully accurate. That's part of the tension of reading through all this. Now, with Ham's mystery children, of course, I am referring to Ham, who one of the three brothers of uh, uh, being uh, Shem and Yapith, uh, the sons of Noah, um, I need to I need to spell this out. Okay, first of all, the Bible is not a monotheistic book. I'm sorry if that bursts anybody's bubble. Uh, it is untrue. Uh, Yahuwah Elohim, or you, you could say Yahuwah Elohaika, uh, Yahuwah Sevaoth. Um, he is the Most High Elohim. Okay, he is the our Father in heaven. He is the Father of all Ruachoth. He is. Uh, the, the the creator, we can have the debate between whether it was, you know, how much of it was the father and how much of it was the son, Yahushua HaMashiach, who created. But he is the most high Elohim, and there are many Elohim uh, who are created by him and under him. And the Bible does uh, recognize some of these, all right? Now, I just need to put that out there. I'm not going to give all their names. You can kind of figure it out for yourself. Uh, there's the big B. He comes up a lot in there. Uh, he's one of them. Uh, but So you have that. but. A few years ago, if, if you were to ask me, okay, so we have the Elohim, and that's the whole divine council, and these Elohim rule over the different nations. Uh, a few years ago, if you were to ask me what a demon is, uh, if, I, if you were to ask me 20 years ago, I would have said, well, a demon is a fallen angel. That's what the church teaches. Eh, that's incorrect. 
That is not what a demon is. A demon is not a fallen angel. Um, uh, we do not see the watchers uh, being called demons. A demon is typically uh, defined for us as the disembodied ruakoth the disembodied spirit of a giant who was the uh, the son of the watchers all right now this is what i would have told you several years ago it is correct they are the children of the watchers a lot of people they they ask a the question when will the giants return uh, i kind of feel like that's maybe misdirection and might have good intention uh, but uh, they're already here guys the giants are already here amongst us they are the demons but i'm going to add to that and say that that is not all that a demon is. There are probably many types of different demons um, coming from different sources. They are not all the children of the Watchers. Um, and as well as, you know, the different types of angels out there, I think that angels are probably as diverse, if not more, than animals on the Earth today. There are probably hundreds or thousands of types of different angels out there with all different looks. So we're, we're talking about a, a cosmology of a lot of variety. I'm not going to be talking about any of that tonight. Why did I bring it up? Because I want to avoid confusion as to what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about some of these uh, supposed gods, these Elohim among men, and showing you that uh, they may have been actual people actual literal people on this earth at one time. You will see what I'm talking about as I go through here. That does not mean that there are not Elohim, uh, you know, improperly ruling over men and so on and so forth. All right, well, let's get right into this. Ham's mystery children, Elohim among men. That seems pretty self-explanatory to what I just went through. You can see the contents there. Jumping to page three, let's get started. Introduction, the sin of Ham. This will be a little bit of review for some of you at first. Apologies, but I got to cover all my bases when I do these presentations because there are going to be people who are listening who will be totally confused. And what are you talking about if I don't, you know, start at, um, at, at one? I can't just, you know, can't st start at 30 or 40, right? You got to go through one, two, three, four, five here. So let's get going. Ham had sex with his father's wife. There it is. Hopefully you weren't drinking from your morning coffee or chewing on an overpriced blueberry scone while reading that, as I would have either choked or sped up all over the computer screen. Sometimes I struggle figuring out how to start these conversations. But then I got to thinking, everything hinges upon Ham's sin. The topic, after all, is Ham's many children. The guy was a rabbit, and it was nearly always springtime. Names will be dropped, familiar names including those names associated with divine beings. People as well as Elohim, whom you never suspected to be his offspring, much less real historical figures, will be put forward. Therefore, Ham's sin needed to, to uh, get out of the way. Don't worry, I will explain. Spinoffs have been in order around here as of late. I figure this is the second one to my 7,000-year timeline deception paper. Uh, the first uh, spinoff would have been Many Lives of Nimrod, as I, I just said. But also because I only write within my own exclusive multiverse. This is a simultaneous continuation of the Serpent Seed saga. And there's a couple links there. You could read those papers. That's two birds with one stone right there. Choose your path wisely. The first Timeline Deception spinoff was a little ditty, which I like to call The Many Lives of Nimrod. In that one, I showed you how it, how it was entirely possible to have Nimrod interacting with Abraham when, in fact, the LXX separates them by a thousand years. No, I won't spoil it for you. 
That's something you're going to have to read for yourself. The sleight of hand may slip out later on, later on during this exercise, and in fact, it is likely to happen sooner rather than later now that I think about it. But I dropped these links for a reason. I said this was a spinoff, did I not? Reading a paper such as this one without re uh, regarding the parents is like obsessively watching Laverne and Shirley or Joni Loves Chachi, but then never watching a single episode of Happy Days. My Z generation and I gen readers probably don't have the faintest clue what I'm talking about. I'm already losing a segment of my audience. Oh no. The best policy. my Nimrod research forward and there is always that one person who cannot agree to anything unless the scholars have signed off on it. Whether it is the dating of books or what may be constituted as a scriptural authority, the dreaded uh, pseudo-stamp, much less the delirium of the Hellenization virus which has been wedged into historical and dare I say fictional geological columns. Another way of saying this is that many will claim they take the words of Elohim over man, but then very few can agree on the scope of Elohim's words, seeing as how men have been so busy at work classifying them into categories. Regarding Ham's children, I will be criticized for dropping the names that I do because they don't always match up with the modern historians. The modern historians, you see, have already assigned for us what geological columns the names of uh, Ham's children belong to. Not the, ancient, not the ancient historians, though. No, the ancient historians had hundreds, if not thousands, of volumes of records at their disposal. But they're all wrong, apparently. It is somehow the modern institutions, with the few remaining texts conveniently available to them, which know better than everybody. Need I remind you again that this is the 7,000-year timeline deception which you are reading from. There is no desire on my part to leave you hanging. Before this is over, I will show you what I believe is happening. And <laughs> it's funny I say that because I don't know if it's included in this presentation. Um, we can discuss that afterwards. The sin of Ham finally explained. Many of you have scoured the internet for an answer regarding Ham's sin, and now you found it. I dropped it in the introduction if you want to know. How many people just skim right over the introduction nowadays? Oh, fine, I'll say it again. Ham had sex with his father's wife. Everyone else either beats around the bush, outright denies it, or simply devotes their entire life to keeping you in the dark on the issue. It is the very job of gatekeepers to overpopulate the halls of academia and drown out the competition with the loudest speaking voice. Diplomos are printed and framed in such a way that you haven't the faintest clue that the sons of Cain rule the world. But if you do, they won't grant you one. And no, I'm not bitter. Time is short, and the whispered things need brought out into the open. Everybody may want to rule the world, like the Tears for Fears song, but the puppet masters belong to a singular family. You probably noticed that I said his father's wife rather than mother. And that is because we're being technical rather than figurative. Noah's wife may have been, Sh may have been Shem and Yapith's biological mother, but there was no relation between she and Ham whatsoever. I covered this already in my Serpent Seed paper. 
more homework. And the second time I actually put that link in. Most people aren't remotely aware that Noah's wife did have a child through, and it wasn't Noah's. Let me repeat that again. Most people aren't remotely aware that Noah's wife did have a third child, though, and it wasn't Noah's. If you're counting, that makes four sons in all. The story regarding Noah's drunkenness, as it is described for us in the Hebrew Masoretic, is known. But very few seem to realize it is that event when it happens. It's there. Too many people have blinked and missed it over the years. Read it again. This is what it says. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he and he said, Blessed be Yahuwah Elohim of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. Elohim shall enlarge Yapeth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. Genesis 9, 20-27. I took the red marker out on the fundamental details. The first thing we see is that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. It's the little details. Really, it took me years to notice it myself. Ham being the quote-unquote father of Canaan is directly associated to seeing the nakedness of his father. And there you have it. Canaan is a result of Noah's nakedness. Confuse how that works? No, I'm not changing the rules of sex education. We're, we're getting to that part. Ham immediately leaves his father's tent after fathering Canaan and tells his two brothers about the committed deed. That would have been his way of saying, I'm the big boy. I'm in charge now. Patriarch of Humanity MI, head honcho, VIP, top dog, special sauce, and the boss. So from now on, you'll have to do what I say. Or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. Way to go, kicking no while he's down, Ham. Shem and Yapeth respond to Ham's cockadoodle proclamation by respectfully covering their father's nakedness. The shame that has come upon him, that is. While their father and mother are still passed out upon the bed, both brothers lay a garment upon their shoulders and, and walked in backwards so as not to see her. The same account can be found in Yovhelim, or Jubilees, and it says this. And he rejoiced and drank of this wine, he and his children with joy. This is referring to Noah and his family. And it was evening, and he, wept into, uh, he went into his tent. And being drunken, he lay down and slept and was uncovered in his tent as he slept. And Ham saw Noah his father naked and went forth and told his two brethren without. And Shem took his garment and rose he and Yapeth. And they placed the garment on their shoulders and went backward and covered the shame of their father. And their faces were backward. And Noah awoke from his sleep and knew all that his younger son had done unto him. And he cursed his son and said, Cursed be Canaan, an enslaved servant shall he be unto his brethren. And he blessed Shem, and he said, Blessed be Yahuwah Elohim of Shem, and Canaan shall be his, his servant. Elohim shall enlarge Yapeth, and Elohim shall dwell in the dwelling of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. 
And Ham knew that his father had cursed his younger son, and he was displeased that he had cursed his son. And he parted from his father, he and his sons with him, Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. It says Noah cursed his son. Ham wasn't the son whom he cursed, though. So which son was it? Shem or Yapith? It wasn't them either. The son whom he cursed is told to us, and that person is Canaan. Supposing I do have it all wrong concerning Ham's sin, and there was no possible way that he slept with Noah's wife. Then try to explain the curse to follow. Should one of my sons see my plonker in the bedroom and then snicker about in the hallway among his siblings, cursing his child and all the generations which would spring forth from that child seems wildly overactive. Perhaps Noah was immorally loose behind the cannon, being drunk, and Ham simply saw him, well, you know, doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, still overreacting. Noah did no wrong here. He had a perfect right to be naked in his own tent. Contrarily, if my son were to rape my wife while we were inca incapacitated in bed, and now she was to be found pregnant with a child, his child, that would be fair reason for cursing, don't you think? It's what I think. My wife's own child would now be my grandchild. Excuse my post-babble German, but that's some seriously twisted foobar right there. It's not like I'm misrepresenting the language picture being presented to us either. All we need to do is flip over so many pages to Leviticus to see precisely what is being described. Same author as Beersheath or Genesis. Moshe highlighted the story of Noah's nakedness in order to give visual content to the Torah of Yahuwah. Uncovering one's nakedness is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Take that one step further and uncovering the nakedness of a married woman is uncovering the nakedness of her husband. That is, having sex with another man's wife is akin to having sex with the husband. But not even the father's wife goes unnoticed here. I've taken out the red marker again just to make that point known. Well, let's see where this comes from. This is a long passage from Leviticus chapter 8. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am Yahuwah. The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. And here it is. It is thy father's nakedness. The nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father, or daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover. The nakedness of thy son's daughter, or of thy daughter's daughter, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover, for theirs is thine own nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife's daughter, begotten of thy father, she is thy sister, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister, she is thy father's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister, for she is thy mother's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's brother. Thou shalt not approach to his wife, she is thine aunt. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy daughter-in-law, she is thou, thy son's wife. He's, you know, who is really covering the bases here? Just making sure uh, that... You know, <laughs> we, we cross it all off. Okay, check, check, check. Can't be with this person. That Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. Neither shalt thou take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, for they are her near kinswoman. 
it is wickedness. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness, beside the other in her lifetime. O so thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness, as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife, to defile thyself with her. Leviticus 8, 6-20. I need a quick drink of coffee after that. Moshe comes across as repetitive so that it goes on and on and on and on, but only to check off every box possible. No, you may not uncover the nakedness of your mother, your mother's sister, your father's sister, your brother's wife, or your wife's sister, Capiche. There are, of course, more references to uncovering a woman's nakedness in the Torah, and thy father's nakedness takes the helm, considering the, consider the following passages. So in Leviticus 18.8, it says, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's wife. It is thy father's nakedness. Also, uh, from Leviticus chapter 20, 11 and 19, And the man that lieth with his father's wife, wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Verse 19 of chapter 20, and thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister, or the sister of thy mother. For that man has uncovered the nakedness of one near kin, they shall bear their iniquity. There is no reference in this discussion, but if there were, then deep down inside you know and I know that he would blow the whistle and call it incest. Ham uncovering his father's nakedness was in reference to Noah's wife. The resulting implication is that Noah could no longer lay with his wife. Before the flood, Noah uh, has two wives. Nama was a daughter of Lamech of Cain, Ham's mother, whereas Yapheth and Shem were descended from Sethstock, uh, the sons of Seth. Afterwards, a plurality of wives not only became an impossibility, but as you will see for yourself, he was no longer capable of fulfilling Yahuwah's command and bringing forth more children upon the earth. Right there, I kind of dropped the challenge and I, I gave some information that I'm not going to be backing up right now that Noah did indeed marry two different women. Uh, one was uh, Naima, who was a daughter of, uh, from the lineage of Cain. And uh, his other wife, uh, who managed to go onto the ark, Naima died before the flood. Uh, she was uh, from the line of Seth. That is a... Uh, I'm not including that in this discussion. I do have a write-up on that, uh, but just, just to save time. Imzara is the name of Shem and Yapis' mother, one of, her names, uh, one of her names at any rate, and she was put away for the remainder of their lives. Imzara. Imzara, that's from um, uh, the Book of Jubilees, gives her that name. It's not like there were other women to marry. Every living being with the Ruach of life had been destroyed in the floodwaters, save for the animals in the ark and, and the wives of his sons and their children. Noah continued another 350 years after the deluge, living 950 years in total. During this time, he became a winemaker. That means he lived a third of his life drinking wine, but with nobody to have sex with. You'd have to be a hater of sexual intercourse and probably a Baptist-leaning Protestant to disagree when I say that totally sucks. Hopefully we're all mature here. I mean, it's just, this is the Bible. We're talking about the Bible. I base my assumption upon another account some 20 chapters later. 
It involves Reuven and Bilhah and reads as follows. And it came to pass when Yashrael dwelt in the land that, Ru that Reuven went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Yashrael heard it. Uh, Yashrael, of course, was uh, the father. Uh, Yaakov was the father of Reuven. Now the sons of Yaakov were 12. Genesis 35:22. That's all we're given in the Hebrew Masoretic. Reuven simply lay with Yaakov's concubine. There is a pregnant pause, and then the story simply continues on, leaving you to gasp and wonder at the implications. No wonder why so very few people know about it. A somewhat fuller account can be found once more in Yophilim and Jubilees, which explains the repercussions. More precisely, it details how a righteous man like Noah would have dealt with the same situation. And Reuven saw Bilhah, Rachel's maid, the concubine of his father, bathing in water in a secret place, and he loved her. And he hid himself at night, and he entered the house of Bilhah at night, and he found her sleeping alone on a bed in her house, and he lay with her, and she awoke and saw, and behold, Reuven was lying with her in the bed. And she uncovered the border of her covering, and seized him, and cried out, and discovered that it was Reuven. That's really interesting. She's actually obeying Torah right there. Uh, she cried out. And she was ashamed because of him and released her hand from him and he fled. And she lamented because of this thing exceedingly and did not tell it to anyone. And when Yaakov returned and sought her, she said unto him, I am not clean for thee, for I have been defiled as regards thee, for, Ru for Reuben has defiled me and has lain with me in the night. And I was asleep and did not uh, discover until he uncovered my skirt and slept with me. And Yaakov was exceedingly wroth with Reuven because he had lain with Bilhah, because he had not uncovered, or I'm sorry, he did, because he had uncovered his father's skirt. There it is. And Yaakov did not approach her again because Reuven had defiled her. And as for any man who uncovers his father's skirt, his Deed is wicked exceedingly, for he is abominable before Yahuwah. For this reason it is written and ordained on the heavenly tablets that a man should not lie with his father's wife, and should not uncover his father's skirt, for this is unclean. They shall surely die together, the man who lies with his father's wife and the woman also, for they have wrought uncleanness on the earth. And there shall be nothing unclean before or before our Elohim and the nation which he has chosen for himself as a possession. And again it is written for a second time, Cursed be he who lieth with the wife of his father, for he hath uncovered his father's shame. And all the holy ones of Yahuwah said, So be it, so be it. It's like, it's like they have to keep telling you this over and over and over again, and people still don't pick up on it. There, you see, Reuven also uncovered his father's nakedness, his shame, his skirt, that nakedness as well as the shame and the skirt were his father's. It has already been established here at Cosmology that the Torah of Yahuwah is eternal, and more importantly, that it predated Moshe, even creation. Therefore, you cannot tell me a father's nakedness does not apply to Ham, nor that the specific law written down for us in Leviticus has been done away with. Don't be disgusting. 
Jubilees clarifies that adultery is written and ordained on the heavenly tablets above, telling us that the Torah delivered below on Sinai is practiced in the divine court. Having sex with your father's wife always was and still is uncovering his nakedness. And anyways, it says right there in verse 9, and Yaakov did not approach her again because Reuben had defiled her. That's the immediate consequence. Like Noah with Imzara, Yaakov no longer enjoyed the company of Bilhah. She uh, still need another example? Fine, I will give you one. This one comes from 2 Samuel. So they spread Absalom uh, a tents upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in, that's the same as Absalom, uh, Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Yasharel, and David came to his house at Yerushalayim, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward, and fed them, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Second Samuel 16.22 and uh, chapter 20, verse 3. You can see I kind of jumped the verses there. After Absalom slept with his father's concubines in plain sight of Yashorel, David put them away as well. He never slept with them again. It says they were shut up until the day of their death, living in widowhood. I have just given you two examples apart from Noah and the Torah. Yaakov never slept again with his woman, nor David with his concubines. The longer consequence to Reuben's actions is that he lost the birthright. Cain, of course, was the firstborn of Adam and Chua, and yet he was never offered the birthright, and why is that? Supposing you did your homework and read my serpent seed paper, then you already know why. Canaan was cursed with servitude, whereas Ham's other children, still serpent seed, that would include Nimrod, labored to snatch the kingdoms of the world from Shem and Yepeth. We will get to that part. Reuben simply lost his birthright to Yehuda. We can see the exact same theme being played out in Yeshayahu chapter 47. Descend and sit in the dust kingdom of the congregation of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there is no throne of glory, kingdom of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Receive this calamity and go into servitude. Put away the glory of thy kingdom. Thy princes are overthrown. The people of the, thy armies are scattered. They have vanished away like waters of the river. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, uh, full vengeance on thee, and I will change thy judgment from the children of men. As for our Redeemer, Yahuwah of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Yasharel. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O glory of the kingdom of Chaldeans. Thou shalt no more, no more be called the mighty one of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou hast not had compassion upon them. Thou did make thy dominion over the ancient very cruel. This comes from the, uh, the translations from the Targum. Nakedness shall be uncovered, going into servitude, polluting the inheritance, and so on. Interesting correlations. And anyhow, Reuben personally attests to the fact that Yaakov never had sex with his concubine again in the testament of Reuben. And this is what we read. 
And now, my children, love the truth, and it will preserve you. Hear ye the words of Reuben your father. Pay no heed to the face of a woman, nor associate with another man's wife, nor meddle with affairs of womankind. For had I not seen Belhah bathing in a covered place, I had not fallen into this great iniquity. For my mind, taking in the thought of the woman's nakedness, suffered me not to sleep until I had wrought the abominable thing. For while Yaakov, our father, had gone to Yitchak, his father, when we were in uh, Eder, near to Ephrath in Bethlehem, Bilhah became drunk and was asleep and covered in her chamber. Having therefore gone in and beheld nakedness, I wrought the impiety without her, perceiving it, and leaving her sleeping, I departed. And forthwith the angel of Elohim revealed to my father concerning my impiety, and he came and mourned over me and touched her no more. The Testament of Reuven, chapter 3, 9 through 14. Someone will surely tell me that these texts, Yovelim and Reuven, do not agree with the other, as Yaakov is informed in two separate ways. Perhaps so. That is not to say, however, that an angel could not tell him about it while he was occupied elsewhere, before Bilhah came to consciousness. Bilhah could still very well confess to Reuven's actions afterwards, once he finally got around to approaching her. You tell me. Scripture is often written from different perspectives, uh, Yovelin belonging to Bilhah and Reuven to Yaakov. That still begs the question, how was Noah knowledgeable of the fact that Ham was raping his wife, but remained incapable of doing anything about it? I have found an explanation and will present it to you. But when I do, it will open up another can of worms regarding the ham situation. I'm sure you're ready for it, though. So this comes from the travels of Noah into Europe, chapter six, which we'll be delving into more in this book, uh, in this presentation. Among all the sons of Noah, Ham was the least in his father's favor, who also by reason of his magic art, wherein he had great knowledge, was called... Zorost, or we'll get more into that, who wholly gave himself over into all incivility and rude behaviors, following the abominations and vices of those horrible giants before the flood. He is hating his own father, for that he saw himself least beloved of him as he saw him thus lying drunk, using some charms of enchantment, took now the time of re revenge, and by his magic, so bewitched his father in those places of generation that he disabled him ever after to have use of a woman or to get more children. For these and other such his detestable impieties, he incurred the wrath and displeasure of Day or Elohim in most grievous manner and was afterwards banished from his father who afflicted him with no more punishment therein for such his unnatural deeds so committed. Sleep paralysis is my best guess. The reason is to why Noah was inca incapacitated. And magic, sex magic. Noah knew what was happening in his sleep, but remained bound to the bed. The big reveal here derives from Ham's other name. More like his secret identity, which is Zoroaster. There is your bunny breadcrumb trail I told you about, and the ultimate purpose of this paper. I'm simply not ready to go there yet. We are still establishing a very important premise. What I wanted you to see is the magic involved, but also that the same text agrees. 
It claims that Ham disabled his father Noah from ever having use of a woman or being capable of seeding children afterwards. We started out with a reading from the Masoretic Hebrew, Genesis 9, 20-27. Now let us revisit with fresh eyes the same passage as given to us in the Targum. Are you ready? Ready as you ever be, hopefully. Then let's dive into the deep end of the pool. So, so refreshing to know the truth of his story. So this is revisiting the same story from the Targum, and here we go. And Noah began to be a man working in the earth, and he found a vine which the river had brought away from the Garden of Eden. And he planted it in a vineyard, and he flourished in a day, and it, it flourished in a day, and its grapes became ripe, and he pressed them out. That's a whole other story about the grapes and why they flourished in a single day. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he made himself naked in the midst of his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, beheld the nakedness of his father. Hopefully that language is uh, familiar to you now. And showed to his brethren without. And Shem and Yapeth took the mantle and bare it upon the shoulders of each and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned back and the nakedness of their father they did not behold. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew by the relation of a dream what had been done to him by Ham, his son who was inferior in worth on the account that he had not begotten a fourth son. And he said, Accursed is Canaan, who is his fourth son. A serving servant shall he be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be Yahuwah the Elohim Hashem, whose work is righteous, and therefore shall Canaan be servant unto him. Yahuwah shall beautify the borders of Yapeth, and his son shall be proselyted and dwell in the schools of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant to them. The Genesis Targum. Up until this point, you have only eaten cake, as I have withheld the icing. But that is also because I chose to save the best for last, but no longer. The Genesis Targum straight up says that Noah had not begotten a fourth son, and yet a fourth child was born to him. It also says Noah knew by the relation of a dream what had happened to him. Perhaps it is Yahuwah who let him in on the news, though I am still holding to my sleep paralysis theory via the magic of Zarathustra. You know the names of his first three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yapeth. The other was Canaan. Now, that was review for some of you guys, uh, but that needed to be covered. And uh, now... Understanding that, I'm going to get into the meat of this. Will the real ham please stand up? If you need to catch up, we're on page 18. I need another quick drink of coffee. Give me a second. And here we go. The cat is out of the bag. Zoroaster is ham. This is, of course, assuming you listened to my lecture on ham sin and stumbled upon that tidbit with, with the class, or else you won't have the slightest clue what I'm talking about right now. That's what skipping ahead earns you. Confusion. I won't be repeating the passage where I derive that information from either. You will have to retrace those steps on your own because we're moving ahead. Not all is at a total loss either. I predict there will be more sources linking Zoroaster to Ham in the passages ahead. Vigilance is important because you never really know when such claims will jump out at you. And then this says here, uh, of course, from the Wikipedia, I'd love to, to, to source that, a number of historians, beginning with the Roman Cephalion uh, from AD 120, asserts that Ninus's opponent, 
the king of Bactria was actually Zoroaster rather than Exiartes. Uh, at the very least, my decision to make this a sequel to the Mini Lies of Nimrod should begin to make sense by this point. Zoroaster was Ninus's opponent, and we all know who Ninus was, right? He was Nimrod. Uh, certainly not the first to go by that name, though. It just goes to show that Ham and Nimrod did not get along by any means. Only makes sense that they wouldn't. Can't have two roosters in the same hen house. By the way, I am pulling this quote from the wiki, and, and as you can see, there were several different individuals who bore his name, according to some ancient historians, meaning there are various culprits to be identified, and only one of them is Ham. The same claim mentions uh, Cephalion as the first recognized historian to pit Ninus and Zoroaster against each other, and he was not well loved by Hadrian, the emperor. The emperor banished him to Sicily, where his work was composed, apparently. Well, here is another one of those historians who felt the same way. The Magus Zoroaster, king of the Bactrians, is considered important against whom Ninus fought. The person making this claim is St. Jerome. I stumbled, upon, I stumbled upon him often, and FYI, he was a Constantine propagandist. Perhaps they were all propagandists for one beast regime or another, but what, rec but what recognized historian isn't? All I know is, they were working with stacks of historical records which we no longer have in our possession, in fact, entire libraries of them, and these were the conclusions they came to. In all likelihood, the Zoroaster who went up against Ninus Nimrod wasn't Ham. There were already two Nimrods preceding Ninus, and Zoroaster Ham would have already been dead by that point. If you are lost, then you need to review the mini lives of Nimrod, I'm sorry to say. Which means we are altogether dealing with another Zoroaster. The son of Zoroaster, possibly. I will do my best to show you where I'm pulling my conclusions from. Um, okay, so this is from Recognitions of Clement. How fun. For these and some other causes, a flood was brought upon the world. This is uh, Peter or Kepha speaking, just so you know. As we have said already and shall say again, and all who were upon the earth were destroyed, except the family of Noah, who survived with his three sons and their wives. One of these, by name Ham, unhappily discovered the magical act and handed down the instruction of it to one of his sons who was called Mizraim, from whom the race of the Egyptians and Babylonians and Persians are descended. Him, the nations who then existed, called Zoroaster, admiring him as the first author of the magical art, under whose name also many books on the subject exist. He therefore, being much and frequently intent upon the stars, and wishing to be esteemed a god among them, began to draw forth, as it were, certain sparks from the stars, and to show them to men in order that the rude and ignorant might be astonished, as with a miracle, and desiring to increase this estimation of him, he attempted these things again and again until he was set on fire and consumed by the demon himself, whom he accosted with too great importunity. Recognitions of Clement 427. That sounds like an awful end. According to the Clementine homilies, it was the son of Ham, the same individual listed in the genealogies as Mizraim, that's where we get Egypt, who was first recognized by the Zoroaster name. 
But then notice what else it states. Zoroaster Mizrim learned the craft from his father before him, Zoroaster Ham. Yes, I am fully aware that it doesn't say Ham was the big Z, but hang with me here. The Zoroaster trade was passed down from father to son, and it was only Zoroaster Mizrim who thought to author those secrets. To better illustrate what I'm talking about, I have arrived with cover illustrations from my father's comic book collection. The series by Lee Falk is the perfect example in that many people refer to the Phantom as the ghost who walks because they thought it was impossible to kill him. And by the way, every single one of these I remember reading, he, those are yeah, from his comic book collection. This is due to the fact that there had already been 20 generations of Phantoms who had preceded Falk's Phantom and many of them did die while on the job, being mortal and all. And remember, there were various Zoroasters with different stories attached to them. The problem, I think, is that they've all blended into one person over the centuries. It would explain why some two million verses and countless other books could be attributed to one name, many of which deal in necromancy. The confusion is intentional, I think. So, reading again from The Travels of Noah into Europe, chapter 24, many writers have affirmed that this ham was a man of singular ingenuity and sharp capacity, and that he first found out the seven liberal sciences and had written many books of great worth, among which his chiefest were of necromancy, of which most part of them were burned by this before said Ninus. Some also say, which is, I didn't actually pick up on this. It's kind of interesting that his work burned, but also so did uh, uh, Z. Some also say that he only in the world came out of his mother's womb laughing and with a smiling countenance, which is an uncal thing. And as most hold, uh, uh, prognos prognosticating, that's a big word. I don't know if I've ever encountered that before outside of this paper. No good. Until the, unto this ham, Typhon the Giant, his elder son by Nogla, was heir, and also succeeded him in humors and malicious dispositions, who was brought up in Egypt and there continued. So the travels of Noah into Europe, chapter 24. But hold on. Here we read that Ham was the author of, of the seven liberal sciences and necromancy, which he first discovered, thereby finding conflict with Clement. Which is it, then? In the very least, it agrees in that one of Ham's sons succeeded him as the spokesman of Zoroastrianism. I find no conflict, however, in his son's name being Typhon the Giant. It has already been established that these guys had numerous names possibly as many names as there were post-tower languages, which is 70. By the way, Noagla, uh, or yet yeah, Noagla is identified as being the wife who accompanied Ham onto the Ark. Uh, and by the oh, I'll get to this in a second. Nimrod Nimroth would have been Zoroaster Ham's grandson, and eventually his contemporary, just as assuredly as Ham's great-great-grandson, Nimrod Ninus, was the competing contemporary against Zoroaster Mizrim Typhon. It was the books attributed to him which Nimrod Nidus burned in the Sacred Fire, most likely. Hopefully you didn't get lost in that whirlwind of information. Uh, just look here that it says that Typhon the Giant 
uh, was brought up in Egypt and there continued. I think that's basically saying that this is Mizraim, the same guy. And he was a giant. Despite there being many different potential Zoroasters, each with unique stories attributed to them, Ham is the candidate identified with laughing after being born out of his mother's womb, thereby foreshadowing his nature. Because in the father-son mythos, the painful lesson every child must learn when attempting to wrestle with his father's legacy is that his father did it first, and perhaps more importantly, he did it better. Ham is, of course... Ham, of course, was a Cain, and the same unidentified demon who is said to have instructed Zoroaster can likely be attributed to the usual candidates, Cain being one of them. The same demon, by the way, also brought about his death. So you're going to have to refer back to what I wrote in the, uh, the Nimrod paper, the Many Lives of Nimrod, that Nimrod was personally trained in the arts by the Ruakoth of Cain. And uh, it appears that Ham, uh, I have yet to find the identity of the demon who, um, who raised Ham uh, in the arts, but I'm just putting it out there that he is the, the best candidate. I'm curious as to who you think Ham is in these four paintings. Quite the womanizer, it seems. A total babe magnet by the look of it. More like an incestual and ser serial rapist, but you get my point. I'll give you hints as to his identity. He's not Zoroaster this time around. I know I asked the real hand to take a stand, but it appears as though he has only been hunched over up until this point. And if you're listening to the Sisson uh, podcast, I apologize, you can't see these pictures. So you're about to find out who is in these pictures. This is coming once again from the Childs of Noah into Europe, uh, chapter 20 again. It hath been already specified how Noah dividing the universal earth unto his children, and how Ham abounding in all vices and detestable courses, notwithstanding was not deprived of his portion, but had his right of inheritance justly allotted unto him, which was the third part of the world, and particularly Africa to the, the hither part of Egypt, for which countries he was commanded by his father to depart with his wife, Nogla, and five and thirty rulers, which is as much to say as the chiefs of family of his blood and house, as also with all their children in issue. Okay, so there's a lot of people in here. Again, just a reminder, you guys know three children came off the ark. Uh, then we have the fourth Canaan. Um, but also, according to this book, Noah and his wife had many other children before the Ham episode. So they actually had you know, I don't know, a dozen other children or something like that number. Uh, but the land was still divided according to the three sons, Ham, Yapith, and Shem. The others did not get the inheritance. Um, yeah. Where was I? I can't remember. Let's see. Uh, let's figure this out. Okay. Which was accordingly performed, and presently he established himself as king and Saturn of Mitraim, Egypt where he erected and builded a city called uh, Chem-Men, and among them also he himself was called Pan and Silvanus, which people likewise so engendered and issued of that family to honor and worship him the more, and to show their love unto him, lived in all uh, impious and ungracious manner, perpetrating most odious and soul-damning villainies, affirming publicly that men ought lawfully to have the company of their own mothers, sisters, and daughters. So there you go. Another confirmation. And all lust and 
concupiscence of the flesh. I mispronounced that. I'm sorry. There's some big words in here tonight. And other many most inhuman and shameful acts not, not to be recited. And to show that they gloried and boasted in the wickedness of such their king and ruler, they intermed him by the name Ham Essenus, Essenus which signified their infamous god Pan. And thus he ruled in Egypt long time, even into the 6th and 50th year of the reign of Jupiter Baalus, the second king of Babylon. So Ham's greatest claim to fame, it seems, wasn't in becoming the Pan Man. Interestingly, the Roman deity Sylvanus is another name attributed to him. The part where Ham taught others to lawfully have company of their own mothers, sisters, and daughters once again underlines what he was ultimately doing in Noah's tent. Do we recall uh, that he told his brothers about it afterwards, which is what we see him doing here in instructing others? Perhaps he was attempting to entice Yapith and Shem to gang rape her as unpleasant as that sounds. I apologize for the imagery, but again, this is the Bible we're talking about. Ham is a child of Cain. These are the sick and sadistic pedophiles who rule our world by way of magic. Also note the timing of his tenure in Mitraim. Baalus, the second of the Nimrods, who I talked about in that other presentation, was ruling from Babylon. Nimrod Ninus hadn't even come on the scene by this point. It would be Ham's son, Zoroaster Mizraim Typhon, who took his stand and ultimately lost against uh, Nimrod Ninus. The wrinkles in the timeline are finally getting ironed out. And here we have a couple of photos from that time when I moved my family to Europe. It took me forever to dig them up out of the vaults. I took so many pictures of doorknobs and table legs and other random artifacts that it's good to know two of them came in handy. The one, I'm, the one on the left is a date rape kit from Chateau de Chambard in France. And um, Pat appears to be showing a girl a good time. Maybe this is none of my business, but she already looks woozy. Probably slipped her the juice already. I can't stand it when I, I made this into a PDF file before this presentation, and it does this sometimes. So sorry for that really weird whatever happened there with the text. The other is a pan monument it's in the gardens across from Christchurch, Oxford. That's where uh, uh, C.S. Lewis was professor. I know this is to uh, I know this to be so because those are pan pipes in between the creepy looking goat heads. Of course, nothing says the grounds uh, where little Alice Liddell went around exploring, pretending to play croquet with the Queen of Hearts or whatever, quite like a monument to pedophilia. Go ahead, children, have fun playing. I'll pick you up in an hour by the pan statue. Never mind that strange man. Oh, I'm sure reading. I'm sure I'm reading too much into this, and it's all just another coincidence. That's probably it. Speaking of Pan showing up at the playground, we're all familiar with Peter Pan and the Pirates and, and the Neverboys uh, pedo circuit. But I was surprised to stumble upon the Pan Man's presence in The Wind in the Willows only a few minutes ago. That I did not know about. This time around, the nature god conveniently shows up when Otter's lost son, Portly, has gone missing and even helps Rat and Mole recover the child. Well, that's nice of him. It also says he casts a spell of forgetfulness on all those he helps. Seriously? 
Must be where the men in black and the aliens learn their ideas. Before anyone inter interrupts to say they've read the novel and Pan is never mentioned by name, tell me who that is on the cover again. Yes, they ditched Mr. Toad to place a pedo god on the cover. Who are the sick people writing this ham-centric literature? Wait, now I am confused. I thought Pan was a ladies' man. Why the disgust then? You have to see the picture. So sorry for all the people listening to the podcast out there. I am told we are gazing upon a Roman fresco from the house of Dioscuri in Pompeii, and that it is Pan spurring the advances of Hermaphrodites this time around. FYI, Hermaphrodites was a... I can't even pronounce it. Hermaphrodite. Though the mythologies insist he was born a boy, uh, rack, rack, racking this up to another case of androgyny. Good to know in the very least that Ham Pan had some limitations. Mothers, sisters, and daughters may have been a recipe for the magic, but dudes with boobs were a naughty no-no, according to the artwork given to us at Pompeii. Well, there you have it. Ham is identified with both Zoroaster and Pan. When we pause to consider that Ham was a cane and in fact the father of all canes, then the two connections make more sense than anything. With Zoroaster, our controllers are given a role model in that magic is strictly a discipline and the highest aspiration of the sciences, whereas Pan delivers an unquenched appetite to the ongoing ceremony. I didn't promise that this would be a pleasant conversation. All right, page 26. Seven, the mystery children finally revealed. Pausing for a drink of coffee. You've heard the expression regarding the apple not falling far from the tree, which is entirely true of Ham in relation to Cain. But what about his children? Up until now, the purpose of this paper has hardly been served. Can you blame me for laying the groundwork, though? Imagine me sitting here telling you how the children of Ham became our controllers without first making the serpent seed connection. It wouldn't have nearly the same effect for sure. Yes, Noah divided a sizable portion of the earth into three parts as an inheritance for his three sons. What I hope to reveal, however, is that Ham went about usurping those thrones. It happened in his generation and, by all indications, continues until this present hour. Again, though, we would be missing the bigger picture if exoteric explanations are the only ones being offered. There is something else going on entirely with Ham and the children whom he, uh, whom he seated. Here, I'll show you. And in those times, all good and just princes were go called gods, as Pan, Apollo, Jupiter, and infinite others with their goddesses, muses, and nymphs. Uh, the Travels of Noah into Europe, chapter 25. The children of Ham were called Elohim upon the earth. Sure, Noah and his other sons may have been considered something similar among the post-Diluvian people groups, but then notice how they weren't worshipped as the sons of Ham were. Certainly not until this very day. What Elohim is Shem worship, uh, worshipped as again? Oh, that's right. He became a Mekilzedek. Nobody throws the Mekilzedeks onto a hieroglyph, and why is that? It is because the children of Noah were showing us how it was done, 
esoterically speaking. I include Shem in that, but very few people want to follow the ancient path he trod upon. Pan and Apollo, as well as Nimrod and Osiris and a host of others, are still held as the standard because there is something about their stories which rings true, spiritually speaking. Understand it's not true to my spiritual story, but we're talking about the, the broad path here. Here is the secret of the ages. A worship of any one of these Elohim is ultimately the worship of the self, because they were the golden relics of a silver or a bronze, perhaps even a clay age. They were the master builders of the post-Diluvian reset. They managed things on a spiritual plane, which no other generation has come even remotely close to achieving. They were Messiah prototypes. Wait, back that up. I should stress Antichrist, every last one of them, but you knew what I meant by that. They were Antichrist, and above all else, Nimrod still is the spirit of Antichrist, in my opinion. It is up to you to decide what to make of their death and resurrection stories. But I do not believe them to be merely symbolic. Or else the mystery religions, as well as our contemporary secret societies arising from their ruins today, would not lead the neophyte into their burial and resurrection initiation rites. Let's be, and that's a that's a huge thing, a uh, huge part of the mystery religions, as as you probably know, and and Freemasonry and other things like that, that they lead them into burial and resurrection initiation rites, uh, skull and bones, and and they. Often, some of them, as you will know, will include sexual acts in that as well. Let's be clear on what I am saying. After a lifetime of contemplating these matters, I have concluded that nearly all world religions are legitimate spiritual expressions. You might even say they are true. Really, pick your Elohim. They answer prayers. Miracles can be backed by many of faith statements and are evidence to its practitioners as to why their denominations ring true. It's why naming your Elohim is so important to this conversation. Who are you addressing in your prayers? I address Yahuwah Sevaoth, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, the father of Ruachoth, because he has shown his testimony to be true through the word Yahusha HaMashiach, his son, inheritor and creator of the world. This is the way which Shem Mekilzedek showed for us, as well as Abraham and Moshe, and turned the prophets eventually Yahusha. And so it is the narrow path which I choose to travel down, which is in obedience to the Torah, Yahuwah's instructions, and in righteous living. Everybody wants to live forever, and this is the way, the path to immortality. The other Elohim will die like men, and only the righteous will pass through the flames, confronting the mortal world with eternity. That is my conclusion in a nutshell, but I cannot make your decisions. It is up to you to choose your Elohim. Who do you think will be standing on the other side of that flame? That was my conclusion to this paper, by the way. The sentence where I, what I just said was the conclusion. Uh, the sentence where I stated, it is up to you to choose your Elohim, was intended as the last one. I simply couldn't help myself, and really it needed to be said. You will have to accept my apologies then if and when I suddenly cut this off. It's not that I am being rude or inconclusive or anything, because now you know what my conclusions are. And anyways, regarding my claim that Ham went around usurping thrones, here is one such example. And to show that they gloried and boasted in the wickedness of such their king and ruler, they intermed him, uh, speaking of Ham, by the name Ham Essenius, which signified the 
infamous god Pan. And thus he ruled in Egypt long time, even until the 6th and 50th year of the reign of Jupiter Bailus, the second king of Babylon, in which year he began to travel and came into Italy, which was then called Kittim, which is interesting because that's the same uh, word that they use in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Kittim, to his brothers Comaris Gallus, the first king of that country, after whose death Ham presently usurped and undertook that mighty government. So he's toppling thrones who instead of virtuous instructions and gold laws in which all other princes round about him, his kinsmen, commanding Germany, Spain, and France, had instructed and taught their people, clean contrary infected the youth of Italy with all manner of impieties, incivility, and corruptible vices, persuading them, being of themselves well addicted, to usury, robbery, murder, poisonings, and the study of the magic art, who by reason of his own great skill therein was surnamed Zoroaster and was the first inventor and practicer of that, of that vile and diabolical learning, of the use of which he composed and written many books, and he was called generally throughout the world uh, Cam Essenus, uh, there's some Latin there for you, uh, Propagator. Uh, some have thought that the Turk for those such like causes is called in his letters patents, Le Grand Cam de Tartaria. The travels of Noah into Europe 20. In the very least, you can see why Nimrod hated Ham so. Nimrod was doing something similar in that he was planting his children's bums on various thrones. They were uh, competitors in every respect, in land grabs, but also in how they mastered magic as well as entire religious denominations to follow. And look at the effect which Ham was having. Pan was born in Mitrim only to make a true name for himself in Italy. I talk about the twins Romulus and Remus in my 1948 Gog and Magog paper, specifically in making the Rome connection with Zionism. But I'm thinking some of that research would be better served here. Look, uh, or look at the painting depicting Romulus and Remus being nursed to health from the wolf. Who is that with him in the bush? It is Father Ham Pan the world-renowned sex offender. The scene is Palatine Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome. Who is that creeping up to the shrubs so as to discover the babes at the wolf's bosom? A shepherd, we are told. Talmudic literature manages to give us a name, and you'll probably never guess who. And this is what it says in Esther Rabbah 3.5. Two orphans were left to Esau, namely Remus and Romulus. And you, Elohim, gave permission to a she-wolf to suckle them, and afterwards they arose and built Rome. The answer you were looking for is Esau, the one and only. You may need to refer back to my Nimrod paper again to see why I suspect it is Tammuz, or Tammuz, who, whom Esau offed in the woods, potentially in devotion or as an act of worship to Semiramis. It's a cyclical, uh, it's, it's a cyclical weather and harvest thing. How ironic is it then that Esau was responsible for wrestling the kingdom of this world away from Nimrod and handing it back into Ham Pan's hands through the first kings of Rome? I didn't even see the connection on the last go around, but now I do, and so do you. Fun fact the origin story. Oh, yeah, before I get into the origin story of Valentine's Day, uh, another passage I should have thrown in here is that in Jasher, it says that when uh, Esau uh, killed uh, Nimrod, 
that he took his garments from him, which were the garments that belonged to Adam and Eve. Well, those are the same garments that Ham had stolen from Nimrod at the same time that he committed his deed, uh, uncovering his father's nakedness, and passed it down to Nimrod, giving him great power. So it, you see the transfer of power in this account, that he is stripping the power away from Nimrod. His kingdom is never the same after that. Uh, the Nimrod's kingdom comes to an end, and he hands it over to Rome, the last beast. So something to think about. Fun fact. The original story of Valentine's Day can be traced back to the Roman festival Lupercalia. The name of the she-wolf, by the way, was Lupa. But even before that, Lupercalia derives from an even older archaic festival, the Lycaea, which, with its secret, uh, secretive mystery rites, was once held on the slopes of Mount Lycaon. <laughs> Sorry, I get, I get left here with trying to pronounce all these names. Sorry, guys. The tallest peak in, in Acadia, in which literally means Wolf Mountain. And so, coming around full circle, Acadia was the home of Pan. Here's some of what we know about Lupercalia. The, the annual holiday, which transpired every year on February 15th. Now, I don't think that's a typo. I think it was the 15th rather than the 14th. Started with a sacrifice. Uh, Luperci priests would disrobe themselves. That's a lovely picture. Uh, before slaughtering goats in the Lupercal. They would then cut the goat's skin into strips and run around the Palatine Hell in Rome assaulting women, presumably while naked. So, ladies, if it's February 14th or 15th, just keep away from the Palatine Hill. Uh, that'd be a good piece of advice. Apparently, this was their way of telling the pretty girls, won't you be my Lupercalia? Some will claim Pan and Cupid are not the same, and then I'm getting my wires crossed. Well, at the very least, you can say they were tight. I don't even want to know why they're wrestling naked in the woods. You have to see the painting in front of you. Cheered on by a rambunctious crowd as well. I'm willing to bet it has something to do with the orgy going on in the background of the painting. Sodomites every last one of them. Why is there an angel flying overhead? Sounding the alarm on, on a trumpet, no doubt. Only the spiritually attuned will hear it. A nickel of advice. The next time Valentine's rolls around, hide your wife and children. One more Esau quote for the road. And this comes from uh, Deuteronomy Rabbah, so more uh, Jewish literature on the subject. Or rabbinical, you could say. I know you can defeat Edom, but I wish to subdue my world through them, through Rome. So it's connecting Edom with Rome. I need Rome for future generations until the final redemption. Moshe, your teacher, already wished to engage the Edomites in battle, but I said no to him. Esau is Edom, by the way. No time to explain that now. Perhaps you are not able to believe it, that Esau, who is Edom, discovered Ramus and Romulus, thereby establishing Rome. It makes all the sense in the world to me, though. Pan being responsible for the foundation of Rome through the nurturing of the twins is an obvious plot point for mythology storytellers, but then tack on Ham with the serpent seed connection and then Esau to boot, and Yahuwah's 7,000-year timeline redemption plan quite suddenly becomes fine-tuned. But again, I am holding up a pen and a pad of paper rather than a gun to your head. Just know that Remus and Romulus are not the only offspring whom Pan tucked away for safekeeping. There are others. Dionysus is one of them, sort of. Are you really surprised, though? It's difficult finding a single portrait of the wine Elohim or his Bacchus counterpart without the 
satyr is showing up. Here we see Dionysus so wasted that Father Hampan has to cart him around for the uh, the Minad parade. Pan's goat association has gone without mention up until now, but I'm thinking it couldn't be any more obvious that Azazel was represented by the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. Who is Azazel again but a watcher from the Book of Enoch, among other texts? You know what that means, don't you? Azazel is the biological father of Cain. Many will argue against the idea that Azazel and the serpent are the same entity, but that is not what the Apocalypse of Abraham has to say on the matter. So here's a quick uh, quote from the Apocalypse of Abraham, chapter 14. And the angel said to me, Know that from henceforth the Eternal One has chosen you. Be of good courage and use this authority so far as I bid you against him who slanders the truth. Should I not be able to put him to shame who has scattered over the earth the secrets of heaven and has rebelled against the Mighty One? Just pause real quick there. That is such a fascinating quote when he says that Hasatan, or Azazel, read that again, has scattered over the earth the secrets of heaven. Let, that con- let, let the implications of that sit in. What are these secrets of heaven that have been scattered over the whole earth? Say to him, become the burning coal of the furnace of the earth. Go, Azazel, into the inaccessible parts of the earth, for your heritage is to be over those who are with you. The ones brought forth with the stars and clouds and with the men whose portion you are, even those who exist on account of your being. Justification shall be your enemy. Now depart from me by your perdition. It says Azazel's heritage is to be given to be over a great many people. And that many of them and that many of them only exist on account because of him. Inconclusive, you tell me. Well, keep reading then. This will be, uh, we're skipping from 14 to chapter 28. And the eternal mighty one said to me, Abraham, Abraham. And I said, here am I. And he said to me, consider from above the stars which are beneath you and number them for me and make known to me their number. If you're confused in why the stars are below him now and not above him, it's because he's in one of the higher pliers of heaven and he's looking down through the firmament. And I said, how can I? For I am but a man of the dust of the earth. And he said to me, as the number of the stars and their power, so will I make your seed a nation and a people set apart for me as my own inheritance, as distinct from that of Azazel. And yet I include Azazel in my house. From this added information, we can deduce that Azazel has a seed just as assuredly as Abraham has a seed. It is strictly speaking of a spiritual seed, he will tell me. Very well then. We will have to read further on. So this passage is a little bit lengthier, but it comes from chapters 33 through 36, which tells me that I need another quick drink of coffee. And I said, O Adonai, mighty and eternal, who are the people in this picture on this side and that? And he said to me, those, so he's, he's, he's in heaven, Abraham, and he's looking at a picture. And what's really fun about this uh, picture is that from what I can tell, it is the first example in literature of a motion picture of a of a movie. It's actually a picture that is telling a story that is moving. I have never seen any example that I can find so far older than this. So that's really exciting. Uh, those who are on the left side are all those born before your day and afterwards. Some destined for judgment and restoration and others for vengeance and cutting off at the end of the age. But those on the right side of the picture, they are the people who have been set apart for me. 
and whom I have ordained to be born of your line and called my people, even some of those who derive from Azazel. So it's saying right there that you can still derive from the line of Cain and you can you can serve Yahuwah and be um, and achieve salvation. People freak out when they hear the serpent seed thing. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter. It, you know, salvation comes from both sides. Now look again in the picture and see who it is who seduced uh, Chua, Eve. And what is the fruit of the tree? And you will know what it, what is to be and how it shall be with your seed among the people at the end of the days of the age. And all that you cannot understand, I will make known to you for you are well-pleasing in my sight. And I will tell you of those things which are kept in my heart. And I looked into the picture, and my eyes ran to the side of the Garden of Eden, and I saw there a man of imposing height and mighty in stature, incomparable in aspect, and he was embracing a woman who likewise approximated to the aspect of his size and stature. And there were so many references to Adam and Chua being giants. And they were standing under a tree of the Garden of Eden, and the fruits of this tree was like a bunch of grapes of the vine. And standing behind the tree was one who had the aspect of a serpent, having hands and feet like those of a man, and wings on its shoulders, six pairs of wings, so that there were six wings on the right and six on the left, uh, describing, of course, uh, uh, in my opinion, a seraphim dragon. And as I continued looking, I saw the man and the woman eating the fruit from the tree. And I said, who are these who are embracing and who is the one between them who is behind the tree and what is the fruit they are eating? And he said, this is the council of the world. This one is Adam and this one who is their desire upon the earth is Eve or Chua. But he who is between them represents ungodliness and their beginnings on the way of perdition, even Azazel. Uh, chapters 33 to 36. Rather difficult making the claim that the serpent isn't Azazel at this point. Also, that many people don't derive from him when, in fact, he created lineage in Eden. I have just taken you through a long-winded detour, but it was necessary to show why Ham Pan would be so enamored with basing a mystery religion sex cult around wine. Because, oh, that's the other thing. The produce from the Tree of Knowledge has been identified. Remember what, what it is that Noah was drunk upon when Ham worked his magic and the peripheral vision becomes even further in focus. Our controllers are letting the neophytes know whom they are worshipping when praising Pan as his sexual victims, the first of which was Noah's wife, as well as the offspring resulting from them. Bacchus was a slacker, it seems, in that he was often too wasted to spend time with his own Bacchic women. He couldn't even show up in this painting for crying out loud. Leave it to the sons of a Zazzle goat to show them how it's done. Because, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to time, uh, when it comes time to wrestling the legacy of one's father, the lesson we constantly learn is that our father did it first, and perhaps more importantly, he did it better. It has just now occurred to me in all of this that I went howling off on the hound hunt without ever showing you where Hampan is listed off as the father of Dionysus. Well, here it is. It is written that Ham had one sister, which was called Rhea, married to Hammon, king of Libya, who also was enamored of one other fair woman called Almanthea, and had of her by adulterous means a son, whose name afterwards was Dionysus, which child was secretly brought up and nourished in a certain city of Arabia called Nisa. 
Notwithstanding, the matter was not so closely and cunningly handled, but his wife Rhea had private advertisements thereof. Whereupon, and despite a jealous discontent, she forsook her husband and went home to her brother Ham, then abiding in the island of Sicilia, who presently married and espoused her, and as some writers hold, his wife Nogla being alive. Uh, remember, Nogla is his original wife who was on the ark with him. But of this other, he afterwards got many children, as Cush, the father of Nimbroth, the giant, the first king of Babylon, Typhon the giant, and also many others. That comes from chapter 21. You may need to take a few minutes to compose yourself because that account for sure uh, was for sure a dizzying one. Dionysus, I recognize, but then what else is going on? For starters, Hammond is identified as the king of Libya. Well, I'll be. That can only mean one thing. He's a son of Ham. He has to be a son of Ham because his wife, Rhea, was Ham's younger sister, and she wouldn't very well have married her brother. Not yet, at any rate. We are not told much more about the Libyan king here, though I'm guessing he is none other than Baal Hammond, the chief Elohim of Carthage. Look him up for yourself. There's a link right there. He was a weather Elohim considered responsible for the fertility of vegetation and esteemed as king of the Elohim among his people. This same Baal Hammond had a female cult partner named Tanit, according to official traditions, who is probably the same woman listed here, Almanthea. Together they had Dionysus, which would would uh, uh, make him a... Uh, a Huh. which would make him Ham's grandchild. Baal Hammond's bedtime habits with the priestess Tanit uh, Al Almanthea, particularly the Elohim of their union, created such jealousy for the king's wife that we then see her running off with her brother in marriage. That would be Ham Pan. The result of their incest was Cush, the father of Nimroth the giant, the builder of the tower at Babel. There is your Nimrod origin story. Oh, the tangled web they weave. The Mysteries of Dionysus was apparently started by somebody named Orpheus, the Thracian bard. This was the same guy who traveled with Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece, going so far as to descend into the underworld to recover his lost wife, uh, uh, Eurydice. That's something the legends... Uh, let me say that again. That's something the legends from this generation all seem to have in common. They were taking the trip to Hades and back, showing their children how it was done. You can take that for what it's worth. I think there's something to it. According to that same Orphic tradition, the first Dionysus was the son of Zeus and Persephone. Take a mental note of his being dismembered by the Titans, only to be reborn again. You see a common theme among Noah's post-Diluvian family. Nimrod and Semiramis were all grasping at the same immortal rights. I'm guessing Persephone is Rhea in this story. Speaking of which, she has her own school named out in her honor. Ever hear of the Eleusinian Mysteries? It was all about Persephone. Here is her story in a nutshell, according to the ancients. She was picking flowers on a spring day and minding her own business when the young Persephone was brutally raped and abducted by someone with a god complex. His name was Pluto, and uh, her whereabouts was uh, Hades, um, if you must know. I don't know why there's so many typos there. That's so strange. Let me say that again. His name was Pluto, and her whereabouts was Hades, in case you must know. 
when she didn't return home, her mother, Demeter, went looking for her. She, too, we are told, was a goddess. Of course, everyone from that generation, I am saying, was pretty much, you know, a god or a goddess. As she broadened the scope of her search, Demeter found herself wandering about the entire world, neglecting divine duties as she did so, and the earth suffered. Through, though the rains had assuredly arrived soon before Persephone's carefree jaunt through the country, the Adventist summer witnessed no grains or wheat. By this we can conclude, quickly conclude, not only was all of creation involuntarily punished for want of nourishment, but the Elohim were as well. They were deprived of their offerings. Someone had to give. Now, this is the, I'm kind of paraphrasing the official story of the mysteries of uh, the Eleusinian mysteries. It is for this very reason that Demeter's Olympian siblings demanded the release of her child. There was, however, a slight complication from the underworld side of things. The naive Persephone, negligent as to the health of her own soul, had eaten of the forbidden fruit, uh, six pomegranate seeds in this case. Consequently, Persephone was liberated on one condition, that she must return in Pluto's company every year for six consecutive months. Uh, though Demeter undoubtedly delighted in her daughter's presence throughout the remaining year, her annual sojourn resulted in inconsolable mourning. The harvest was plentiful, but come autumn, the earth once again fell into neglect. That is to say, whenever Persephone was returned to Pluto, winter fell upon the earth's inhabitants. Pluto and Baal Hammon may very well have been the same person. Baal Hammon had a consort named Ashtoreth, and I'm thinking that may have been the Almanthea whom King Hammon was so enamored with. We are told this was an adulterous affair, so we really don't know who she was married to. That would make Demeter Noah's wife, the Council of, uh, the Council of Olympians Noah and his other sons. Too much? Ham Pan stealing Rhea Persephone away from Baal Pluto implies that he was attempting to undo whatever was settled in the council, either an earthly or heavenly one, and play by his own rules. Here's what happens to them. Ham and his own sister Rhea thus married together. They consulted and advised to be revenged of the king Hammon of Libya, and to that effect raised a great army of men, and with the assistance and help of their brothers, the 16 giants, that's interesting. They, uh, these would be um, uh, some of Noah's other sons. Uh, they set forward from Sicilia and in the end arrived within the territories and confines of Libya, where they gave King Hammond battle and in the field overthrew and vanquished him so that he was glad to flee into the Isle of Crete, now called Candia. Not long after this, Rhea had a son of her husband Ham called Osiris, afterwards surnamed Jupiter Eustace who proved a most noble and gallant prince, far differing from the wicked humors and dispositions of his father. That comes from chapter 22 of the same book. What has just happened? We have just puddle jumped from one mystery religion to another is what? Dionysius to Isis. Meanwhile, we read nothing here of Dionysius's demise. It seems implied, however, in that giant set about to defeat Hammond and his crew, thereby relating the Titan story spoken about by the Thracian barge. The reason why the writer's, writer avoids any mention of it may have to do with his love of Osiris. Calling him a most noble and gallant prince seems a bit biased, if I do say so myself. Initiated much? That might be it. Then again, Osiris may have indeed been or started out even as the noble and gallant sort. 
Who am I to say otherwise? I wasn't there. Look at how Osiris is described in relation to Melchizedek. And now also it shall be fit to revert our history unto the two youngest children of Ham Zerostes, which excelled in all good parts and virtuous inclination as their father abounded in the contrary. And that was that Osiris before spoken of, the adopted son of Dionysus, king of Libya, and Isis, his sister, the fairest and best accomplished damsel in the world, whom afterwards he took to wife and married, with whom he had also the kingdom and principality of Mitraim, these two now newly espoused, he being of threescore years of age and she about fifty, and yet our author Berosus terms them very youthful, um, this kind of issue, she was twenty years his elder Isis, began to apply themselves to the study of the nature of herbs and to the finding out of planting, tilling, and sowing of corn, which afterwards they instructed their people in, and showed the use to their neighbors dwelling in Palestine, of which ruled king and governor Shem, surnamed Melchizedek, who was the first that ever offered bread and wine unto Elohim. I don't know about that claim, but we'll just leave that there. From thence Osiris passed into Mitraim, and there also very painfully showed them the manner of telling and agriculture, as likewise the poet Tibulus speaketh of, saying, He was the first to make plows by hand, Osiris, and having joined the iron, uh, having joined the iron, he pressed the boom. And that comes from chapter 24 of, of Noah. The contrast before us is a stunning one. While Pan Ham and his crew of the Roaster Misfits, as well as the Nimrods, were working their magic so as to manipulate the harvest as well as elevating their own Ruach to immortal status and what else have you, Osiris was literally learning how to plant, tell, and sow the ground, going so far as to teach others, including Shemekelzedek, to do the same, according to this text. Well, I'll be. Seems like a decent fellow after all, despite being a son of Ham. The story at least checks out that Osiris and Isis were siblings. Maybe we have it all wrong about the man who became the I. And at any rate, the mysteries of Isis emphasize the righteousness of their king. His precedent, uh, his uh, preceded uh, materialize the rule of Matt. Uh, well, we're talking about the mysteries of Isis here, and Osiris specifically. It's, it's called the rule of Matt. For the Egyptian, the goddess Mat personified the ideal natural order, truth, balance, harmony, law, morality, and justice. Mat not only regulated the stars in the womb of uh, Nuit, whom I have pointed out elsewhere as the Ruach of the firmament, uh, the, the Egyptian firmament is uh, uh, Nuit, and the seasons emanating from their father Geb, but managed both mortals and deities alike. Was Matt an attributed name for one of the 70 Elohim set up to rule by Yahuwah? I don't know. Ham and the children of Ham weren't necessarily going around usurping people with God complexes. No, he very well may have been attempting to usurp the Elohim they represented as well and set up his own divine practices. Sheesh. And you thought you had a crazy uncle. Once set, uh, or um, yeah, set, usurped the throne of Osiris, the goddess Mat lost her authority, seeing as how Set had a god complex. Order was therefore ruled by disorder, balanced by imbalance. In her place, the rule of Isfet materialized. 
So hopefully you guys are following along. In Egyptian terms, this simply meant injustice, chaos, violence, and evil reign supreme. It would take Horus, miraculously conceived of Osiris through Isis, to usurp the usurper and restore Matt to the natural order of things. In this way, Osiris might be reincarnated again through his son, summing up the religion of the pharaohs. And yes, I have just described the plot line to the Lion King. The circle of life continues, you see. There's actually a lot of movies out there that have the whole mysteries of Isis storyline. One of would one of them would be Back to the Future. Great example of it. I've yet to see anyone write do a write up on that though. Maybe I should be the first. To see if any one if any of these plot points line up with the purported historicity of the travels of Noah into Europe, we will have to keep reading. So continuing with, with the book of Noah. After he thus was quietly seated in his kingdom of Mitraim, his brother Typhon the Egyptian, who in all villainy and malice followed the humors of his father Ham. Remember, this is uh, uh, Typhon is, uh, I believe, Mitraim. Began now to uh, rapine and envy at the glory and fortune of the emperor Osiris. Insomuch as he fell into a present conspiracy with many other malicious giants for the death and destruction of him and of his greatness which he most traitorously uh, prosecuted so far as in the end by subtle and crafty practices, uh, practices he entrapped him, who was by him and the rest of the giants cruelly murdered and torn in pieces, whose body they divided and had hewn out into six and twenty pieces, whereof every giant had a share in part as a reward and satisfaction for such their bloody and victorious stratagem. But afterwards, these parts of his body were found out and gathered together again by the means of his wife, Isis, and buried with their right honor and due uh, solemnity, whom after his death, the Egyptians held and worshipped as Elohim. And also the children of Yashrael did the like in the desert. Chapter 32. The story checks out, mostly. Osiris was betrayed by his brother Set, uh, that would be Scar in The Lion King, only here he is called Typhon. We then see the giants dividing up the pieces of his torn body. Those would be the hyenas. Not sure where the 26 pieces are coming from. Seems a little out of left field since the Isis account specifically notes 14 pieces. The number 14 is significant due to the 14 stars of the Orion constellation. Orion rises to the vertical position each night in November and December. And there are 14 days of the half-lunar period. The, the Mysteries uh, version also relates how Isis was able to track down every piece of her slain husband except for his member. The phallus was apparently eaten by a fish, thereby transforming the Nile River into holy water through its power. I'm just giving you the official cliff notes again. And so I'm reading nothing here regarding his missing member in The Travels of Noah. Not even the fact that Isis cuts off her thumb so as to dignify his corpse, though some versions have her hanging a golden obelisk between his legs. The story should read Isis retrieved all of his body parts, but one very important farming tool. It's the total opposite of the Semiramis story. Notice how the purported historical account never claims Isis is the righteous one, though. Who knows how far into the depravity of her father she sunk after the passing of Osiris. I found this mural from Pompeii depicting Queen Isis of Mitraim uh, petting a snake. Very Cleopatra of her, but also shaking hands with a horned woman. 
Not sure what's going on here, but nearly everyone looks uncomfortable, if not horrified. And I'm pretty sure that's Ham Pan in the bottom left corner. Yep, looks like him, all right. The dude sure got around. I figured he was there to introduce his daughter to the latest offspring, looking very much like his own image this time around. And uh, we're on page 45. If you need caught up, we're almost done. There is one more child accredited to Ham worth mentioning before closing shop for the day, and that would be the character once played by Kevin Sorbo. Though why neglect Dwayne Johnson and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the running for great actor renditions? And this is what we read in chapter 19 of The Travels of Noah into Europe. Having thus touched the death of this good patriarch, no, so Noah is dead at this point. It shall not be now impertinent something to remember and speak of the wicked and abominable life of his son Ham, which altogether of itself it be worthless of any recapit uh, recapitulation uh, or recital, yet to descend to the line, to the line all genealogy of the Libyan Hercules the Great. It cannot be well omitted from which Hercules Dardanus, the first founder and erector of Troy, descended and came. From the loins of Heracles derives Dardanus, the founder and director of Troy, as well as dozens, if not hundreds, of other notable descendants, etc., etc. These are the sons of Cain, whom I keep telling you about, our controllers. I told you there would come an abrupt ending, and it's about to happen in any given mo mo minute from now especially since blah, 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 I can't even read at this point. The conclusion has already been given, but I would be remiss to dot the last sentence without some sort of closing remark. There are Elohim in the heavens, and in fact, Yahuwah placed 70 of them as guardians over the nations. This is all review, of course. By now, you are well aware of the fact that the serpent as well as the watchers were usurpers, and so, as you've likewise already seen, their children have continued to model the examples set out for them. It was, after all, the Ruachoth of old who instructed them. And their contempt of Yahuwah, the Most High of Elohim, uh, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, they assigned him to the seat of the Demirge and set about to conquer the material world through magical manipulation and the ascendancy of souls. If anything, the generation arising from the wet soil of the rescinding floodwaters set the example for all future, future generations of Cain children to follow and that they became Elohim among men. And thus concludes tonight's reading. Thank you, everyone, who has stuck it out with me tonight. I will uh, give it a couple minutes if you guys have any comments, uh, anything you want to say. And then uh, we'll jump straight into the Book of the Nazarene. Well, I'm still trying to absorb all this, but like Steph C said, it, I think that you've just given us a big piece of the puzzle as to how it all fits together and how it relates to us today. You know, um, I can't wait to see where this path leads. Let's go ahead. And what I'm going to do tonight is start reading from the book of the Nazarene. And I drop that in here. There's uh, I'm going to try to get through like seven chapters tonight. And my goal is, is to not, you know, pause and give comments all the time. Or else I'm never going to get through this. I don't want to, you know, teach this. Um, I want you guys to read this along with me, take down notes, um, any 
anything that stands out to you, and then we could discuss it afterwards. I want to hand this over to you guys afterwards. All right, so this is the Book of the Nazarene. There's there's kind of like a, two books in here. The first is called the Book of Yochanan. Uh, that would be John the Baptizer. It's called the Book of Yochanan, the Enlightened of Elohim. And this is, it's only like a few chapters. It's the prelude. We're going to read through this book tonight, and then we're going to get maybe in the first couple chapters of the next one, and then we'll pause there, and we will discuss what we have learned. Be sure to take notes. Also, this is, of course, the, um, the, the book of the month that we are sending out to all TUC members. You guys should be getting it in the mail in the next week. So by this time next Sabbath, Hopefully you will have it. It doesn't really matter because I'm giving you guys this PDF tonight. This is not the same PDF, by the way, that is included in the book. This is the, what I call the red letter edition. So every time Yahusha speaks, it's in red. And also there are tons of references here, cross-references to um, where this is lining up with other pieces in Scripture. So let's get right into this. Uh, this is the introduction. When Elid, our father in the faith came in full flight from afar, seeking refuge beyond the confines of his persecutors, Dominion. He set his uh, colostone in Lanavalok. Now this here, uh, this Iliad is just, you know, it's, it's Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea. And L Lanavalok is um, Glastonbury, um, or you could even say maybe Avalon, but this is in southern England where that's referring to right there. Here I am giving commentary, I'm sorry. Here when he spoke to them, the Druthans said, this would be the Druids, we have never been without the light of truth. Yet you seek to bring another light, strange to us, which seems less bright than ours. And then Iliad said, let us not argue as to whose light lit at the fount of truth burns brightest, but let us put our two lights together so they may jointly give more illumination and dispel more darkness. The Druthan said, the light of your teachings was always foreshadowed, and he of whom you bring tidings is not unknown to us. This is speaking of Yehusha HaMashiach. The, orig the origin of truth is immaterial, for it stands alone on its merits and should always be welcomed, being unlike men who have to be supported by their lineage. The lights were put together to become one, and we alone are its inheritors. Do others have the three guiding lights of life, truth, love, and justice, which all must strive to express in perfection? Or do they know the three things to be um, uncomp uncompromisingly combated? Irresponsibility, hypocrisy, and self-centeredness. Or the three cornerstones of character, spirituality, integrity, and individuality. My brothers, an awful darkness spreads over the land, and I fear for the safety of our light. Such, since the ravens changed their feathers from white to black, love, though esteemed in many forms, is not what it used to be. The love of man and woman has become a thing for lewd jest or righteous disgust. In the days of freedom, love dwelt graciously in a house of beauty, Erected by the highest aspirations of men. They paid manly homage outside her door. Those granted entry displaying justifiable pride in their achievements. 
Now men batter down the door while under the whiplash of lust, polluting the purity within and call it freedom. Once love stood on a sunlit hilltop, clothed in modesty and decorum, but now the climb is too difficult for spiritually weakened bodies. So she is lured into the shadows below. There she has become a befouled, distorted ghost of her former self. Love and beauty are the reflections of Yahuwah in the mirror of man, but the image once reflected in radiant loveliness is now distorted to ugliness. Perhaps we have failed, but we are so few. Is it that love now lacks the nourishment of sincerity, without which it declines and dies? Maybe, since we no longer control our destinies at war, men are less ready to strive for the laurels of love, while women bestow the uh, uh, yahudimal of their bodies with wanton indi indifference to the needful sacrifices required to sustain it. A new and hallowed love walks the land, Unclean harlots and those in whom purity becomes the shroud of love, joining forces against the wonder once glorifying life. Love for which noble-hearted men and pure women would once gladly die, now is so frail it withers at the first breath of adversity, or departs at the leering call of lust. Now true love can be found only where cats have horns. What has happened to the harp-praise glory of the past? In the dark night descending, my heart is heavy with desolation and loneliness. My only consolation is that I can still follow the path of duty, knowing the bud of duty grows in the rose of sacrifice, which falls to bear fruits of the Spirit. Duty is not the least of our lights, but in this land among our people it is the child of a barren woman. My brothers, with this I send the book concerning Yeshua Eduin, son of Yosef the carpenter and Miriam, who through his sacrifice to love and duty became our own um, assurers. His teachings were brought to us by those who lived within the circle of his light and safeguarded by our earthly father in the faith, he being not least among the articulate ones who knew Yeshua and a person of no mean estate both in the distant land from whence he came and in this no less viral land. Yeshua was a fountain of goodness, fed by the bountiful spirit of eternity, a pure stream of wisdom refreshing the longing spirits of men. He responded to their yearning desires as a bee is drawn to the scents of roses. He came to fulfill the desires and longings of men, expressed in certain holy books, but more so, living and spoken in many unlettered hearts. For such is the nature of things that the tree springing forth or springing from the yearnings of men shall not fail to bear fruit. Holy books being likened to an egg containing the embryonic hopes and aspirations of men. In the holy books of Yahudim, it is said that the son of man is the shepherd of men, and we here know how a shepherd tends his flocks. But Yeshua came not as a shepherd to drive, but as one bearing a guiding lantern to light the way through darkness. It was also said, the Son of Man is the deliverer of men. And while we know truly from what we have to be delivered, those in his own land misunderstood the meaning. Chapter 1 These are the things written in his book concerning Yochanan, John the Baptist, of the wilderness, which was brought to these shores by Aristolas. Now, Aristolas, 
the person who wrote this document, and I re will remind you, this is not the same document that uh, that uh, Adam Finca Pedro the Vineyard put together. Uh, wrote here that uh, this is Aristolas is the same as Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, this same Aristolas would be. Well, let me think here. Um, uh, Aristobulus. Aristolas seems to be short for Aristobulus. Well, who is Aristobulus? Aristobulus is mentioned in the Epistle to the Romans. When Paul wrote that letter, he said that Aristobulus, he greeted his household, but Aristobulus wasn't there. Where did he go? Well, he went to England. Aristobulus was the um, father-in-law of Kepha, of Peter. And that is really important to this because we're going to learn the, the, the person who wrote this book has a lot of insiders and intimate knowledge of Peter's household that he was living in Galilee, which would have been uh, Aristobulus's or Aristola's household. And we see a lot of information uh, that we, well, we see a lot of information of John the Baptist of Yochanan. Well, who was a disciple of Yochanan? It was Andre and Kepha. Uh, and I suspect Aristola's as well. All right. So keep that in mind as we read this. Uh, so it's the uh, we see here that if this was brought to the shores by Aristolus um, and is no longer with us. The father of Eucanon was Zacharias, son of Barachias, and he was a priest at the temple, married to Elizabeth from the stock of Aaron. They were both strong in the faith of their Elohim, obeying the laws revealed to his prophets, but childless and well advanced in years. Elizabeth had visited many temples praying for a child, but hitherto her pleas had gone unanswered. Now, that may sound strange there that there were many temples, uh, but even in Jerusalem, you know, the, the archaeologists have, have shown that, yes, there was the temple there, but they had synagogues all around there. I mean, they were, they were everywhere. And the fifth month of the year, when fire was burnt before Gabriel in the court within the outer walls of the temple enclosure, called the Court of the Gentiles, Zacharias was a priest at the altar of incense. Then a strange thing happened while he was alone inside, the people being outside praying. An angel appeared on the right side of the altar, and a voice said, Have no fear of me, for I come to say your prayers have not gone unheeded, and your wife will bear a son. He will become a great teacher, filled with the power of the Ruach HaKadosh. But you must bring him up in the ways of the Nazarene. He will herald the coming of an enlightener, who will turn men from wrongful ways, making them upright and strong in Ruach. Zacharias listened, too frightened to speak, but thought, How can this be when we are both weighed down with years? The angel said, he will save many from the effects of ignorance, leading men back to the fold of Elohim, whom he will serve with the Ruach and power, which was once uh, Elias or uh, Eliyahu's, uh, Elijah's. He will turn the hearts of fathers towards the welfare of their children, and those who have fallen away from their teachings of their fathers towards the wisdom of the Torah. He will go before the people like a like a brazier bearer before a caravan, like a prophet of old, ready uh, to make ready a people purified and dedicated to the Most High Elohim. When Elizabeth knew she was with child, she went to the temple and gave thanks to the Elohim 
who had caused her to conceive, dedicating the child to him, according to the custom. Thus it had been with Samuel, who was given back to his father for service in the sanctuary. Now when her time came, the wife of Zacharias gave birth to a son, and there was no midwife to bring him into the world, neither was a birth bow made for him. Though all others wished him to be called after the kindred of his father, Elizabeth said he should be called after hers, and he was named Yochanan. At the time of circumcision, when many people were standing about, that would be the eighth day, Zacharias became filled with the inflowing of the Ruach HaKodesh and, under its influence, spoke as follows. Blessed be the Elohim of our people, who has given them the means of their redemption. He has brought forth a spring of salvation for us, fulfilling the words spoken by the mouths of his inspired prophets, which have been since the beginning, that we should be delivered from the hands of our enemies and saved from those who hate us. The child of my body shall go before the people, proclaiming the way of Yah, and giving knowledge of salvation for his people. With the remission of their misdeeds through repentance and reparation, like the light of the sun on high, he has descended to give light to those who sit in darkness. He will console them in the shadow of death and guide the feet of men into the ways of shalom. As, as it is written in the books of the temple, hear the voices cry out of Levi and Yehuda, never turning away, for from their loins shall come the chastening rod of the highest Elohim. He will raise up from Levi a priest above all other priests, and from Yehuda someone greater than a king who will deliver my people. The people hearing these and many other things were amazed and stored them up in their hearts, saying one to the other, this is no ordinary child, and surely he will grow up to be an unusual man. Therefore, let us watch and wait for some interesting developments. Among those who heard was one with an unbridled tongue who spread the word of these things abroad. And between the ears and mouths of many people, the events became magnified in such a way as to cause concern in high places. When the Herod, who was king, heard these things, he deliberated with the council, for all waited the coming of the Mashiach, anointed by Yah. But the learned priest said this could not be he whom they waited. For, said they, it was not possible that one with his blood could be either the Mashiach or the Deliverer. Such would be an abomination. Then Herod said, That may be, but let us bring the child into our own fold. For if perchance he be the Mashiach, it is well for him to be raised among us. But if it be otherwise, no harm is done. And in days such as these, it is well to be prudent. Now, word of these intentions was sped out by a maidservant, passing through the ears of slaves to the kindred of Elizabeth, who hastened to warn her. They said, This is a day of woe, for men come from Herod to take away your child and offer him up as a sacrifice. Elizabeth, in fear for her child, gathered him up, saying to a manservant, Take all that can be carried and meet us at such a place. And then she went to Zacharias. Elizabeth found him at his place in the temple and said, Come, my husband, let us flee quickly with the babe, for here he is in danger. Tarry for nothing, unless we make haste, our little one will be lost to us, he who is the treasure of our life and the hope of our people. Zacharias said, 
How can I leave my post in the temple to go into a strange land where perchance people will have no knowledge of Yah? Then Elizabeth said, Oh, my husband, if you will not come, tell me what I must do to save my baby. I cannot waste time here when men come to put him to death. He answered her, Flee to the wilderness of Sheba, where, by the will of Yah, you will both survive. If they come seeking to find him here, or expect to find him through me, then my blood will be shed instead of his, for it is blood they want. Then Zacharias took the babe into a place beside the altar and kissed and blessed him, saying, My son, treasure of my later years, who gladdened my heart and made light the burden of days, now my cup of sorrow overflows. I am to be cut off from the pleasure of holding you. No longer may I feel my heart leap with gladness when I see your face. You are too young for my words to reach your understanding, and it is not my hand which will guide your feet, but go out strong in your dedication to Yah. To Elizabeth he said, May our Elohim and the Elohim of our fathers protect you. Elizabeth said, Dedicated priest and husband, pray for us both that we may not be taken, and I shall be given strength to overcome the difficulties of the wilderness. Zechariah said, He who gave us a child in our old age will not take it away from you, neither will the child perish. May the protection power or the protective power of Yah overshadow your journey. Now the men sent out by Herod were of his guard, and when they came to Zacharias and asked concerning the child, he did not lie, but said, his mother has taken him and fled in fear into the wilderness. They who had returned to Herod and said, The child has been taken into the wilderness by its mother. No food or water is there, but many wild beasts, and the woman being old, surely both must perish. Then those who had the ear of Herod said, Surely there is something more to all this. Is it likely the woman would have fled friendless? Let us send to other men, not of the guard, who will act differently. Herod, being troubled in his heart, agreed. Three men with knives came to Zacharias before sunrise, saying, Herod has commanded us, tell Zacharias his life is in my hand. And I ordered him to speak truly concerning the whereabouts of his son. Zacharias answered, I am a dedicated servant of Yah and obliged to continually attend his temple. Therefore, my son's whereabouts are not within my knowledge. They said, our knives will open your mouth. But Zacharias was unafraid and replied, If my blood be shed, Yah himself will bear witness to the deed, and innocent blood never cries out to him in vain. When Zacharias saw he spoke in vain, and no words would turn their intentions, he took refuge at the sanctuary behind the altar, his hands on the horns. But they stabbed, but they stabbed him with knives, so he died, for they were strangers in ignorance of the Torah. When the morning hour of salutation came and the priest went out, it was seen that Zacharias failed to pay the accustomed homage, and they asked among themselves why he tarried. Then one went from them into the sanctuary of, of Zach, uh, Zacharias and saw his body lying bloodied beside the altar. A voice was heard saying, Zacharias is dead and lies in his blood, but the stains shall not be removed until the coming of one who will avenge the deed. Woe to those who shed innocent blood. Woe to those who let it remain unavenged. Woe for one comes who will destroy the temple rites. 
On hearing this, the priest ran out, crying, Zacharias is dead, and an avenging Ruach has taken up residence in his place. But the others went and saw the cloths about the altar were torn and the carved woodwork broken. Report of these things was made to the people who mourned three days and nights, after which another priest was appointed. The body of Zacharias was shrouded in linen and placed in a tomb beside his father. Elizabeth was alone with the child. She was old and found life difficult to sustain in the wilderness, the manservant having departed with her goods. She discovered a cave where there was a seepage of water and lived there until Yochanan was eight years of age. Then she died, and the child did not understand. Neither did he know what to do or how to bury her. But the ever-present Elohim intervened in his manner, and some people who lived apart from others were directed to him, and he was raised in their ways. Now he puts a note in there, the Essenes. And uh, I think that's a good guess. You'll see why. He reamed with them until the day he went forth to herald the coming of the Deliverer. The people among whom Yochanan was raised did not marry, but adopted outcasts and orphans while they were young. They were godly people in their own way, but did not concern themselves with others. Yochanan rebelled against their exclusiveness, desiring to carry tidings concerning the coming instructor and goodness to the common people. In those days, there was much confusion among men regarding one who would come, and he was given many names and attributes. Therefore, none really knew what he would be like, and many sought only for enlightenment on this matter. Chapter 2 When Yochanan had grown to manhood, he reappeared in the wilderness of Bithymra, proclaiming, Change your ways! For you have fallen to error and ignorance. Return to the teachings of the Torah, interpreting them without guile, and turn your eyes towards the new light of the coming day. For one comes who will be uh, the promised instructor in goodness to establish the government of Elohim. Then the people said among themselves, Surely this is he of whom it is written, the voice of a herald will cry out from the wilderness. Make a highway for Yah. Let the swift rivers be bridged. The high mountains passed and the rough places made smooth, where the impassable places will be crossed and the wilderness made to flourish. Some came to Yochanan from the place of his upbringing, who said, Withdraw from the people, for they are no concern of yours. In good time, preach purification of the Ruach and suppression of passion. But meanwhile, you are too inexperienced. Yochanan said, Worthy teachers, you dress in white, proclaiming your purity. Yet fear to put this to the test. Is your flesh so weak that it must be kept continually under restraint? Is the imprisoned uh, malefactor good by his own desire or by his circumstances? Is not the world a place of temptation so each may discover his own strength or weakness? Untested, you can know neither and must always remain in a state of doubt. The fire hidden in wood gives warmth only when released. It also provides light and is useful, but while hidden away, it is of little value. A tree left growing uncut falls and rots, serving no man. So too is it with knowledge and wisdom, for only when utilized can they have any value. Goodness is not assessed only by the things done, for the things left undone are not overlooked. 
Yochanan appeared strange in the eyes of those who saw him, for he was wild-haired and large, clothed in a garment of hair as were the prophets of old and bound about with a leather girdle like Eliyahu. His food was locusts and bread dipped in wild honey, for he was of the Zophim, who watched for the coming of the kingdom. He came to bear witness to the light which should shine in the hearts of all men, but the Yahudim would not heed him, for he used cleansing waters, which they did not. This, he said, signified the washing away of the causes of illusion and impurities of life. He was a cleanser of minds and hearts. There were markers, but they were afraid to come near Yochanan. Yet many listened to the message and were cleansed in the river of life, providing they were wholehearted and a desire to change their ways. Yochanan knew some were hypocrites. I love this part. And he, <laughs> and he held them long under the water, for he said they required a lot of purifying. He was sarcastic, too. This is awesome. Few men argued with Yochanan, though it is in the nature of Yahudim to argue. This is how Yochanan testified when priests and learned men were sent to question him, saying, Who are you? He said, I am not the one you anticipate, whose coming is at hand. Is it not written, I will send a forerunner to prepare the way? I am that herald. Soon the one you seek will hasten to acquire his kingdom. He will be like a refining fire, preparing you for participation. I am one who verifies the prophets of old, who said, Take heed, for the day comes which shall burn like a fire, when the self-satisfied and wrongdoers shall burn like stubble, so neither branch nor root of their wickedness shall be left. Then some who inquired of Yochanan said, If you are not the expected one, why do you baptize? He replied, I teach cleansing and water as a sign of repentance for the past and rebirth into another way of life. I herald the coming of someone much greater who is now born among you. He is one whose sandal bands I am unworthy to unlace. I use water, but he will immerse men in the ruach and cleanse them with disciplinary fire. He is the bearer of a winnowing fan and will thoroughly cleanse the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the granary and burning the useless chaff. Then one said, No good thing ever came out of the wilderness. But Yochanan, overhearing him, said, Recall the days of our forefathers when the wandering in the wilderness was over, and they came to a land where there was an abundance of milk, butter, and cheese, where the sheep grew fat and corn grew plentiful, where the vine flourished, and all good things for the nature and comfort of men were found. Then the people became weak in body, slothful, their minds turning to unclean things. They forsook the ways of Yah and had little respect for the teachings of the Torah. From which did they derive the most benefit, from the wilderness, or from the land overflowing with good things? Pity me not for my days in the wilderness, but pity yourselves, who have been denied man-making experiences. Yochanan said, Woe to you who have been taken to the keeping of many slaves. Slaves. For you, having robbed the man with a small plot of ground of his livelihood, are worse than than the thieves. You roll your eyes upward, saying, Never would I steal a loaf of bread, and condemn one who steals because of his emptiness. Your stomachs are full, but your hearts are empty of goodness. Take heed of my words, for surely if any man acts so, he brings another to wrongdoing. Even though the other be in a far distant land, he shall not be blameless in the sight of Yah. 
hypocrites, you cast a piece of silver at the feet of a beggar sitting beside the temple and say, I have done good. But how small the goodness compared with the wickedness done to those unseen. What of the disinherited ones, victims of your avarice? They have been driven from their homes and lie shivering in the coldness of the night, no roof protecting them from the night dampness. They huddle uncomfortably under rocks for shelter, aching stomachs denying them sleep. They rake the hard, hot ground with bony fingers and gnaw coarse roots with teeth loosened in their gums. Their mouths are dry and sour and bitter, unsatisfying leaves become an acceptable diet. When they crave for the relief of bread, driven desperate by mouth-watering smells carried on the air, and steal some small thing, they are harried by well-fed tyrants such as the slave owners among you. Take heed of this, for it is the Torah. If a hungry man steals because of the emptiness within his stomach, the crime is not with him, but with those whose hands hold the power. Wow. Those to whom Yochanan spoke said, Tell us not of these things, for we have rulers. We give to the poor outside the temple, but if we gave to the multitude of the poor, we would only be added to their number. Tell us about the deliverer. What you just read there was one of the themes of this whole book. Yochanan said, From what do you expect the deliverer to save you? They said, It is written, He will deliver us from the hands of our enemies. Yochanan said, he will perform no mean task, but will save you from the greatest of enemies. Tell me, which presents the most danger, those who lay siege to a fortress from outside or those within its gates, cunningly biding their time with concealed weapons? Surely it is the enemy within who is most to be feared. As if that's not a prediction for 70 AD. Therefore I declare to you, the deliverer comes not to fight against the enemy clamoring outside, for the silent unseen foe within is most to be feared. Many shook their heads and said quietly, This man is mad. Then one among them who listened said, If he tells of the ways of Elohim, surely those ways are strange. Yochanan, overhearing this, said, The ant cannot understand the ways of an eagle, nor an eagle the way of, of a man. How much less can man understand the ways of Yah? One standing close to Yochanan said, If a man is ruled by two kings, which should he obey? The one who is close or the one who is far distant? Yochanan said, If I answered you straightly, would you follow my advice? The man replied, Surely, for I am perplexed and would hear your words. Yochanan said, Obey the rule of the king closest to you. He who reigns in your hearts. Wow. Now, Yochanan testified concerning Yehusha in this manner. These are the things written in the holy books about he who will come. Then shall Yah raise up a new high priest like no other before him, and he will reveal Elohim in a new light to the understanding of men. He will set the feet of men on the path of rightful judgment. He shall shine forth as the sun over the earth, removing all darkness from it, and will arm men with the sword which brings everlasting shalom. His star will shine above like that of a king, its light kindling the lamp of knowledge, enlightening men as the sun lightens the day. He will proclaim the kingdom wherein the sword will be drawn against the wrongdoers, and the injustices of the poor will be redressed. 
There shall arise the Mashiach from among you who will deliver you from your enemies. Yochanan also said, Already the axe is laid at the root of the vines. For was it not prophesied that every tree bearing sour fruit will be hewn down and burned? Therefore do not be fuel for the fire, but produce the good fruits of repentance wherein lie the seeds of your salvation. The day is not far distant when each shall be called to an accounting, some enjoying the fruits of their labor and rising into glory, while others go down into darkness and shame. There was a time when many temple worshippers came to gain rebirth through the cleansing waters, and Yochanan said to some self-righteous ones among them, Children of the viper's brood, what has caused you to seek escape from the fate in store for you? Produce deeds consistent with repentance, and console yourselves no longer by saying, We are the seed of Abraham. I say, being of the seed of Abraham serves you no better than being one of those stones. When the people said, Tell us what we should do, Yochanan replied, No man wears two coats, so let the man who has two share uh, has two share with the man who has none. Whoever has a store of food beyond his needs, let him do likewise. A tax gatherer asked him, What shall I do? Yochanan answered, Exact nothing above the amount fixed for collection, and never exploit the defenseless and unlearned. Some soldiers asked him what they should do. Yochanan said, Never be unnecessarily cruel or threaten to bring false charges, and make sure you always live within your earnings as soldiers. Then a captain said, What shall I do who must enforce commands? Yochanan replied, Make sure the commands are just and do not extend beyond the need of the circumstances. A man of priestly rank said to Yochanan, what do you, Why do you not offer incense and sacrifice? Yochanan answered, Such things are not fitting for the Most High Elohim, who is already full with all things and lacks nothing. Therefore honor him by giving thanks for his benefits, and let your only sacrifice be dedication to his service. A priest among the crowd said to Yochanan, Do you say the Elohim of our fathers is not a great Elohim? Yochanan replied, You know his requirements and whether these be worthy of a great or small Elohim. Then some cried out, Pity him, for he is only a, a waif of the wilderness, having neither father nor mother. Yochanan answered, have I, not, have I not said, Pity me not, for the wilderness was a goodly father, making me strong and hearty. Can I not overturn the gazelle and lift a great stone? No sickness eats my body, and I can bite through a halter line. What of these people fatten at the tables of their fathers, like geese prepared for the banquet? They say, We are the light of the land, but I tell you, they are unprofitable, they are an unprofitable burden. They say, Give us white water to quench the fire in our stomachs, when every day they kindle the fire anew through their mouths. For things that pass pleasantly through the mouth often stir up strife in the belly. Yochanan was the beacon of the light, the herald of the deliverer, coming to purge the world of wrongdoing by enlightening men, showing what was right and what was wrong. For though men had the light of the Torah, many sought only dimly or with distortion, while many interpreted the Torah to make it accord with their convenience. The true deliverer was one who would deliver men from themselves exposing their weaknesses, failings, 
and hypocrisies, only that they might benefit, the purpose and intent being wholly good. Glory to, to the supreme Elohim reigning in the heavens above all. May peace and plenty fill the earth and goodwill extend to all creation. May suffering, turmoil, and disaster quickly serve their purpose through the cooperation and understanding of man, so they may pass away as things no longer necessary for his upbringing. Blessed be those who preserve these words, and may those who alter them suffer for what they do. The world is glorified through men whose lives are governed by dedication and duty, who completely devote themselves to carrying out the purpose ordained by Yah, using earthly conditions to this end. The desires and longings of the heart, the hopes and aspirations of men, will never go unfulfilled or be ignored by Elohim, while men are willing to rise to greatness through self, uh, selfless sacrifices and devotion to duty. The highest duty to which anyone can be called is service and suffering in the cause of Yah. So I'm going to pause the recording right there. And uh, that was actually the kind of the prologue to the book, the first, uh, really the first two chapters. And then I read an introduction before that. And um, hopefully you guys were kind of taking down mental notes and, um, I'm going to hand it over to you guys. What did you guys think about this? I, I mean, I, the first time I read that, I was just blown away. Uh, that was an incredible read. Hope you guys enjoy that. Give me your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's in perfect harmony with the actual, you know, the word. Um, I don't see any contradictions, any reason why anyone should throw this book out. And it, I mean, it, it sounds fantastic. And like I said, it's perfectly harmonious with the word. Yeah, I love the um, one of the big um, emphasis here. It was, I, I told you that one of the themes of the book was when the people were complaining about the poor people. Yocanan uh, was saying, look, if somebody is starving and they steal something, I, I thought this was a brilliant interpretation of Torah. He's like, they're like trying to get a bite to eat and you catch them stealing and you punish them. The fault isn't with them. It's with you. It is with you and your rulers. You're to blame for why they don't have food. And and then the people, look how they respond. They're like, well, if we, if we give all our money to the poor, then we're going to be poor like them. And... And it's like, what, you want me to sympathize with that? I mean, we're going to see that later on in the book when Yahushua is talking and this guy comes up and he says, um, but if I, he's like, I give my, I give my money to feed the poor, but there's, there's too many poor people and I don't want to give all my money up. And he's like, he's like, well, if you want to inherit the kingdom, um, you, uh, you should, you should give all your money up. And because you obviously are not responsible with your money. Now, keep in mind that this book, what we're going to read, it does not chastise people with money. Uh, Yahushua is not against rich people. He's like, great, awesome. Now use that for the, for the glory of Yah. Like, give it to, you know, give it to feed people, to clothe people. That is why you have money. And so what I love here is where Yochanan the Baptist, he's flipping it on its head. 
he's preparing the way in the wilderness for the coming Messiah. And they all have this idea that the Messiah is going to come and the people like the temple controllers and stuff, he's going to put them in a seat of honor and he's going to overthrow the Romans and he's going to overthrow, you know, they're going to be this great nation. And everyone's going to come and respect them. And he's like, no, that's not why Messiah is coming. Um, he's coming to save you from yourself. And, you know, Obviously, if somebody doesn't feel that they need to be saved from themselves, um, uh, you know they're <laughs> they, they they're going to reject that Messiah. So, any other thoughts? I liked where he said, "Obey the king that's nearest to you, the one that's inside of you." Yes, that was. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because he 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 turned it back on that guy because the guy's like. Well, there's two kings, and you know the one you're speaking about is so far away, right? Because he's like, I got it. You know, we got local kings here. We got to serve, and you know, and 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 then obviously Elohim is the the, or you could say the Meshach. He's the faraway king, right? And he's like, well, yeah, you're you're talking about uh, mileage, I guess. I'm talking about your heart, and uh, it's a very clear that Meshach is the king that is furthest from your heart. So go ahead and serve the king that you you know your riches and so on and so forth see how far that gets you i like how he called them that they were the the fats and geese at the the feast you know i've often wondered uh from my understanding you weren't considered to be a man till you were right at 30 years old and that's approximately the time when uh yahuwah actually or yeshua actually began his service and teaching now john was approximately nine months uh, older than Yeshua, so my my thinking is that he probably only taught and paved the way for approximately nine months to a year before the Messiah was baptized, and then he took over. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't. I'd have to think about that. You're saying that John the Baptist, he was only in it for like a year. I don't really know. Anyone else have any thoughts? Well, I, I, I just love this. Um... I I too think it just dovetails perfectly with the Gospels, what I've heard so far, and I I just want you to keep reading. I want to hear more. Uh, I started to say um, I think we all felt it. Learning of uh, the life of John, we want to hear more about it, just like we'd all want to hear more about the life of or you know early ages and and days of life of Christ. Uh, it's compelling, but when you see that uh, he's speaking and giving such insight and uh, the only way that he could be saying these things is if they were given to him from the wisdom of the Ruach, of the Ruach uh, uh, Kadesh, so that you see that, you know, there is a... Uh, um, an element of it being the word of God and, and spoken, uh, by, uh, uh, that. So, uh, it just feels like, you know, there's references being made to, you know, it aligns with the canon. I, I just think, you know, some of these things that he was saying could not have been made up by man. There, there are things in this, um, book that I was, okay. When I first, Obviously, all of you are very excited. And when I was reading this book, and I saw that this book went very early to England, and that it, it, 
was very unlikely touched by the Roman Catholic Church. If you understand the, the history between the division between England and the, the Catholic Church, and I went over this before, that uh, Britain was the first nation, recognized nation, to embrace Messiah. Uh, of course, I believe it was the epicenter, probably the Millennial Kingdom as well, and this region of the earth. Uh, and so this book collaborates with a lot of other extra biblical books we have gone through in this group. Uh, the um, what was it? The the infancy gospel of James or Yaakov, as well as the uh, I think the infancy gospel of Matthew. I have to refer to which one, but the same story of how John the Baptist's father is killed in the temple, how Elizabeth flees with the baby, um, and. I'm trying to remember, was it the gospel of infancy gospel, Yaakov, where she like Herod's men are chasing her and she actually cries out to a mountain and the mountain splits apart and she runs through it and it swallows her up. Um, it doesn't say that here, but it, it, um, that the same idea of the escape, something we're also going to read. It's, it's like a passing statement. You blink and you miss it. It says that Miriam, Yahushua's mother was raised in the temple. And I was just like, when I saw that, I'm like, yes. Because this is the same thing that multiple other books that I, w I went through with this group uh, said the same thing that Miriam was raised in the temple and that, you know, some people will say that that is a Catholic doctrine or a Catholic invention, and it wasn't. Clearly, this book also agrees with that. Um, so there's not only collaboration with the, the, the main Gospels, but a great deal of, um, you know, uh, the other extra biblical books. Well, so far, I think it puts the stamp of approval so far on us calling ourselves not serene. I was thinking um, the same thing as you were, Noel, about the the infancy gospels and how it lines up with with a lot of those. It, it um, I can't remember which ones they were because I actually recently listened to the super gospel, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's um where I, I forgot who, what his name was, but he put together like all of the different gospels and extra canonical writings and just made the story flow, the, like the gospel story starting from the infancy. But yeah, everything with like the story of Zechariah lined up. And then um, verse chapter one, verse 38, where it said that um, John the Baptist's um, mom died and he didn't know what to do. Um, I was going to bring this up too. So I, I can't remember where this was from because I was listening to it in the super gospel, but there's um, a, um, in one of those um, infancy gospels, it says that actually at that time when John the Baptist's mom died, Yahushua knew that he he knew that as a child and he said to his mom what happened. And then they were kind of like transported there and then helped him bury his mom. And then he made sure he was taken care of in the wilderness. And I thought it said something like Zechariah came back. So I don't, you know, I don't know if that's, inspired or what but i think he said like zechariah came back and raised him or something like that and miriam felt bad leaving him there and, and yahushua was like don't worry he's going to be taken care of in the wilderness but it was just kind of like this cool story where they came and helped bury his mother so i thought that part was cool a lot of a lot of here too what john the baptist was saying just cuts straight to your heart you know like for chapter 2 verse 15 where he said pity me not for being raised in the wilderness like pity yourselves and you know, being here in, in America, I think that cuts straight to, to the heart because we're, you know, even if those that are that are not well off, we're still more well off than other people in other parts of the world. And so that's kind of 
brings conviction. And then I had a question. So I've been listening to the Gospel of Kaledi, which I thought was part of the writings of the Nazarene, which goes along with that same kind of the the same theme there about you know giving to the poor and it's it's um you know not it, it's not really giving unless you're sacrificing and that's been the, the same thing and it's just very convicting but does that like how do all these writings fit together are they different gospel stories or does it flow in chronological order do you do you know Noel so um before I answer that question what you said about the uh, Yochanan, the baptizer, his mother Elizabeth dying, and then somebody came and helped bury. And then you said you read that in the super gospel that it was Yahusha and Miriam. I have never heard that connection before. Um, I now that has my interest. Okay, where is he sourcing that information in the super gospel? Um, I can't say because I I've read a lot of books and I don't know. What, so that is something I'm going to be looking out for now. Um, and okay, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll try to find it and plug it in for you if if you want. I'll try to look that up. Yeah, I would love to, I would love to because then I would want to know more about that book. It's like if they're getting this kind of information that is accurate with this one, what else does the book say? So, uh, okay, so what you mentioned the, the Gospel of Clarity, we're we're basically reading the same thing. Okay, so th this is. Uh, the book of the Nazarene is the Gospel of Clarity, and. The Gospel of Kaleidi, you know, it's kind of attached to the Colburn Bible, and it's 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 a it's a lot of different books in there. There's also the Book of Britain, which has more to see on Yahusha Hamashiach and Yosef uh, of Arimathea, who went over to England. Um, and so it's okay. So here's what here's what I think is happening. Um, let me look this up again, just so I I quote him correctly. Um, so there's, it says in, in this book that these are the things written in the book concerning your canon of the wilderness, right? So we just read through basically the book of John the Baptist, um, uh, if that's what you want to call it, uh, which was brought to these shores by Aristolus. Now the person who put this PDF together felt that that was referring to, um, Joseph of Arimathea, and I disagree uh, Aristobulus is short for Aristobulus, all right? Uh, most likely. Aristobulus, as I mentioned, was the father-in-law of Kepha, and um, who Kepha was staying with in his house. That was Aristobulus's wife was the one who was sick, who Yahusha healed. And there is, uh, we, we know that um, Aristobulus went to England, um, and he, was, he would have been there with Joseph of Arimathea, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who was, you know, Kepha's traveling companion, he married a woman who um, was a of royal descent who came from Britain as well. We learn more about the Book of Britain. It's, you know, the tangled web here. And all right. So so Aristobulus, he goes to England or Britain. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Britain and Philip goes to Britain. Now, this book, the book of the Nazarene, as we go through it. It slides so nicely up to the Gospel of Philip. I don't like the term. I don't like the word the Gospel of Philip. I think it should be the Epistle of Philip because it reads like an epistle. But as we go through this book and we learn about like the marriage of Ruakoth, uh, which is a big theme in this book. Uh, the, the marriage is a big theme in this book. And we, if you, it, it, it works in the same way if you line up uh, the Gospel of John with the 
epistle of first john you line those up side by side and it's almost like first john is commentary on it's they work together so well like clearly it was the same author of first john and you know second third john i believe was a different john that's a whole different thing so um it's very possible that philip wrote this book some people think joseph of arimathea i don't think joseph of arimathea wrote this book um i think it was either philip or aristobulus and that the same author was probably the author of the epistle of philip uh, hopefully that helps uh, so when you get into uh the colbrin bible or the uh uh yeah colbrin uh the gospel of Kaliti, uh there's also in there the book of britain which has some interesting um further information on Yahushua HaMashiach in there and how Joseph of Arimathea arrived on the shores of uh, Britain and he uh, confronted the Druidic people. You saw a little bit of that in the, I put in there in the, the introduction where he's, you know, confronting the, the Druidic people. And they're like, the Druids are like, you, you claim you have this light that you want to show us, but we're already living according to a light. And um, and what do you have to offer? And then he tells them, and he's like, oh, wow, what you have to say, actually, we've been looking for that, that our religion has been looking for what you have been, you know, what have brought to us. 